0: Let's take it to the edge Let's get the flinted
1: Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daly Knives. And this is the Knife Perspective, episode number 048. Sean Houston of Ba 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 Handmade Knives. <laughs> Thanks, man. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Never heard of pronounced hey. like that. Hey, but... uh, you haven't been introduced. We just referenced you. You're not on air yet. You can't oh, speak. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you haven't listened to this show before. Dude, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey Dan, how you doing? I am getting better all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm feeling really relaxed. Um we're getting ready for states with the high school wrestling team and uh they they let old uh drill sergeant Dan cut loose on the kids for conditioning today. So yeah, you know, I, I got a lot of my demons out. I'm, I'm I'm feeling pretty, you know, rainbows and kittens right now.
2: How many stand-ups do you make them do?
1: Um Actually, I, uh, I do smoke sessions. Like I, oh. I funnel my, my inner drill sergeant, and um, we do uh, push-ups, sit-ups, sprawls, burpees, mountain climbers, uh, flutter kicks. And then I let them take breaks by doing things like running in place while I yell at them.
2: Yeah. Before, before States, my senior year, uh, our wrestling coach made, made us do 1,000 stand-ups. Nice, yeah. You want to guess who had no escapes their entire senior year? <laughs> that was me. Does he have two thumbs and look like this? <laughs> I had I had twenty seven reversals. Duke kaboom, <laughs> but no escapes. Hey. <laughs> and uh, fourteen of those were uh, to pin. The arm roll was my my move. Yeah, that was the king of the arm roll. They called me. They called me the mole since I didn't wear contacts, so I was always like squinting <laughs> at the scoreboard. So they'd call it the mole roll. So right. that was pretty funny.
1: Yeah, I actually had forearms like this before I got married. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what, why? From I don't running,
1: I know. From running, the mill, <laughs> from running the mills half series.
2: Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to throw some I,
1: stuff in there just to see if it actually makes it into the show.
2: You aren't going to listen anyway, so you're not going to know.
1: I will tell me. Cuz occasionally <laughs> so, I think uh, that, you said what? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, okay, you can talk now. I'm, I'm done. But, so what I was yeah, going to so, say
2: <laughs> So I'm excited uh all the all the insulation everything in the garage has oh. been super nice with this cold weather. My electric or my gas bill uh, was fifty four percent less than what it was in January than it was in December, so that's Man, it, a big win for keeping the garage nice and toasty. So
1: this cold snap has been uh, brutal. I think we got down to forty last night.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you had you've had some snow down there.
1: We did. We we uh, we had some of the uh, devil's dandruff. Sorry, PG shows.
2: devil's dandruff. Yeah. On that note, do you want to start, want to start talking about our, spo- our sponsors? I do. Do
1: I, do I get to talk about the new ones, or do, do you get to do that?
2: Whichever. Do you, you know what's going on with them?
1: Um, I mean, <laughs> pretty much anything I say, right? <laughs> All right. I'm going right. to go ahead and start off with Jance. <laughs> we are incredibly proud um, to be sponsored by Jant Knife Supply. Uh, when I first started out and I was kind of at the, the hobby level and I was doing small quantities, Jance was my absolute go-to because I could get one or two handle sets of freaking anything in the world. And I know a lot of guys that buy their kits that just want to dip their little toe in. Jans was, they were my go-to when I was first getting started. So it is a, for me, a little feather in the cap to have them as a sponsor. And if we use discount code KP Grip, uh, that's Kilo Papa. I can't remember what G was. All right. KP. Oh, my God. I really can't remember. Golf. Yes, that's Golf? it. Kilo Papa <laughs> Golf, Romeo India Papa. <laughs> uh, if you use that discount code, you'll get 10% off your handle materials.
2: That'll also be in the show notes for anybody that. Uh... <laughs> didn't know didn't know what that was but yeah Jance, Jans does a lot of really cool stuff uh one of the things that uh i've really known them for is they're one of the the best sources for powdered metal that i found oh yeah uh, they seem to have all the different types of powdered metal for guys that are doing canister damascus and stuff so really good stuff and um they've also i've bought a even though kieranite is literally like less than three miles away from me uh they haven't had three eighths inch thick uh Kieranite in stock. Uh so Jance was the, the place that I uh ended up buying some sheets of Kiranite. So yeah, they've got all sorts of handle material and uh, using the or the KP grip uh discount code will give you 10% off handle materials there. So we also have another uh great person for handle materials that's also really close to me. Atlas materials. They're online and they they ship everything. They supply pretty much everything you can think of. And they're one of the biggest crazy fiber distributor in the United States. Tons and tons and tons of it. When I was up there in December, if they had less than 200 blocks of it, I'd be surprised. Um, They do the different cuts. uh, So kind of one that looks like brain coil, coral, and then the other way uh, has some really cool lines and waviness in it. Uh, super cool like canvas materials Uh, g10 micarta they've got almost every size and stuff Uh, dan and natasha there are awesome uh, if you ever can't find something on their website uh, give them a call sometimes they get so much stuff in and out it's hard for them to keep some of the different sizes and stuff that they actually have in stock up on their website so give them a call uh, chances are a lot of times they'll have something in stock that's not doesn't say is in stock on their website, so make sure you check that out. Yeah. And then they asked me they want they would like people to come to their Facebook page. They'd like to start growing that, and uh, they're also doing a another you know, crazy fiber one inch block giveaway on their Instagram page. So uh, Atlas Materials on Instagram,
1: and they have Micarta for days. I think you can actually buy four by eight sheets of Micarta from them if, uh, if you wanted to. Um, some of the guys that start working in volume, uh, I really found that once you go to like two by two, two by four sheets of micarta, you really see a price difference. Um, and one of the things I love about them is I think they were the first people to start doing like colored G10 pin stock because forever it was black or white. Those were your only options. And I'm pretty sure they were the first ones to start doing different colors in g G10 pin stock.
2: Yeah, Dan. Dan listened to a lot of us say that we want some of the colors, and they've even done some of the multicolored G10 stuff. So they have like yeah. a red, white, and blue pin uh, that are the different layers, and uh, some of the other layered uh, colors of G10, black and blue, and stuff. The eighth inch, three sixteenths, and stuff diameters.
1: Well, and it used to drive me nuts because I was always taught to match your pins to your liners, but when I used some cool like blue or red liner, there wasn't a pin to match that to so yep they, they kind of freed me from that that inner angst they allowed me to to spread my wings and 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 to get in touch with my artistic side and bring new color into my handles
2: <laughs> very nice so yeah we want to want to thank jansen atlas materials for be coming on and being sponsors of the podcast uh we also have phoenix abrasives Is another sponsor, and if you use discount code KP10, you can get 10% off your order there of all your different abrasives. They sell Rhinolet, they sell all sorts of belts. Speaking of belts, I started using some of the Broadbeck Incinerator 36 grip belts on my Magna Cut, and uh, I did 22 knives, chef's knives mainly. There were Four pairing knives, one pocket bushcrafter, but everything else of that was six inches and above. And I That's used great. six belts. Six. I used three incinerators and three purple belts. And I did about uh, nine um, eight inch chef's knives. Was this profiling your bevels? Doing the bevels to 36 yeah. after heat treat. Uh, so I did about nine, nine belt or nine blades with. The purple belts, and I did the rest of them with the incinerator belts.
1: I um, I have one hundred percent drank the Kool Aid on the purple belts. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was diehard uh, Norton Blaze for a long time, but the the purple belts have become my absolute go to.
2: Yeah, I the the spark looks completely different off the incinerator belts. Uh, talking with Vince uh, Molina after I was using the first belt, he said these the incinerator belts are actually supposed to be run as fast as the grinder will go and use light pressure on them instead of heavy pressure. Uh, So the, the grains actually break down uh, a lot better as you're grinding and you don't have to kind of like shove a metal piece into there nearly as much. But yeah, I have a whole, whole, I have a whole big picture of the swarf out of the bucket from those, those 22 knives, Uh, lots of steel. So. Um I
1: have to uh I have to try the incinerators again cuz I I tend to lean in probably more than I should.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the with the with a push stick just doing light pressure it was really easy to control the grind and get it get it worked down to where I wanted it to be. Yeah, and I
1: I don't use a push stick. I just use I just use my hands.
2: Yeah. With... You need to start using a push stick, Dan. Yeah. I got fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> Until you don't. Yeah. <laughs> But the fact that I have them
1: proves that I don't need a push stick. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right. And then uh our last sponsor, Old Town Cutlery, they've been a been a great supporter of Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives for a long time. They uh they also have a discount code KP ten off all orders. Uh I buy a lot of my epoxies there. They sell G Flex. They also I also found out that they sell Starbond adhesive now, the the CA super glue. Oh nice. Um so, yeah, they, they sell that and all the different weights and stuff too. Unfortunately, I had just bought a like quart sized bottle of that and I don't go through it too terribly quickly. But um, yeah, Old Town, uh, they have all sorts of production knives. Uh, you can get 10% off their, their prices there. And they could also have some of the best kitchen knives in the world uh, dogwood custom knives and cage daily knives.
1: Uh, and if you're a collector, uh, they have some. I don't know where they find them. I don't know if they're stealing them for, from old widows or what, but they have a phenomenal selection, especially of the old case, but a lot of the, the vintage and collectible folding knives.
2: Yeah. They have lots of cool slip joint knives. You were right, uh, Dan, those scissors. Wait, what? I'm sorry. Uh, were, what did you say? Were, were you're, They were a stork, not a crane, uh, but, but I still, still didn't really look into what the difference between a stork and a crane is.
1: Um, well, one stands on one foot. <laughs> oh, wait, no, never mind. That's a flamingo. <laughs> one brings babies and the other one yeah. lifts heavy things.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, for Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives, you can find those knives at our dealers, Old Town Cutlery. And you can find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center in the Cook Station. And you can find Cage Daily Knives at Northside Cutlery. Kevin's been getting a ton of really good uh, feedback up on the Northside. Uh, he does a lot of sharpening, and uh, he's got some really cool makers and stuff up there. To, so uh, check out on his Instagram page for stuff that he's got coming in. Cool. Do you want to do a shout-out first, or do you want me to? I feel like I've been talking a bunch here recently.
1: Um. Yeah, sure. I'll kick it off. Um. I got some pins from uh, Mosaic Pin World, and I've been really impressed. Uh, He did some custom dogwoods for me, and then because I've been doing a lot of hemp handles, uh, he did some, um, y'all can't see the air quotes, but hemp leaves, um, mosaic pins to go with uh, my hemp handles. and He's been really easy to work with, and I've been been very pleased with quality.
2: Very cool. One of the things that I wanted to shout out is uh, if you have a 3D printer, check out, you probably know about the website Thingiverse uh, or Thingiverse. Uh, they have all, people upload all sorts of models there and you can download them for free and print them. And I've got this Olight o Uh It's got a little flashlight on the side, pretty bright. Um, but the, uh, the refill that, or the ink that they have in there is complete and utter garbage. Um but so um crap it's a crap, <laughs> crap. uh so so on somebody on on Thingiverse uh came up with this little uh 3D printed plasticy piece uh that you can take one of the like uh Fisher Space Pen inserts and then shove it down in there That's cool. uh and then so now I actually have a decently writable ink cartridge in my, my pen so I can actually use it now. The ink the ink, and in the one that comes with it just would never dry like on paper. It would always smear and stuff everywhere and then it would constantly like leak in your pocket and stuff. So terrible. But space pen insert should, should fix that problem.
1: Very cool. Man, 3D yeah. printing is going to change the world.
2: Yep. Uh, speaking of 3D printing, uh, I unveiled a new product like just as we were recording the... Past pro- or uh I feel like we podcast. need a drum
1: roll or something. Like the Sound Effects man, do you have a do you have a drum roll? I feel like we need a, an unveiling moment here.
2: I just I just have this, but that's not really the right drums. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the good news is uh, between now and when we air this, you can just edit in a, a really dramatic drum roll. Maybe a nice <laughs> drum like a, a deep bass. <clears throat> I
0: mean,
2: yeah. Just imagine okay. that
1: you're hearing that. <laughs>
2: Uh but yeah, um I worked with uh Jason Ritchie. Uh he makes a lot of slip joint knives, and he's been a big fan of the sanding buddy that I that I do with all the different inserts. And uh so he does a lot of smaller slip joints, and he uh he he asked me, Hey, can you make something thinner? Can you come up with something thinner? And uh so I came up with a pretty slick little idea for how to do it. So I have one Sanding buddy insert that has like rounded on the top, and it's the actual diameter of your wheel or uh, flat or radius platen. So you can sand in there, and it's only a half inch wide instead of one inch wide that my normal sanding buddies are. And then I also have one that's like a football shaped that I send with a uh, 55 and 70 durometer rubber that's been slightly compensated for the diameter or the the thickness of the rubber. Is that the hard and the soft rubber? Yeah, the hard and soft rubber, Dan. Um, the black one is the hard one. Um, oh, we
1: covered that in an earlier podcast. <laughs>
2: um, so uh, it goes on both sides. So you can, it's all in one little uh, insert. So you can uh, have the actual diameter with uh, some double-sided tape and uh, also the the one that has the different durometer rubbers, So you can, as you go uh, finer grits, you can have stuff that uh, is a little more forgiving and not not quite as hard. Cool. So a lot of the slip joint guys are super happy with those and uh, have been uh, really loving and buying their whole selection of wheels. Uh, I didn't never really realized how many uh, slip joint guys there are. And apparently there's like a bajillion of them in Texas. Uh, so yeah, check those out.
1: As as much as I hate to to compliment you in any way, I've I've got to admit, um, as I go up in the finer grits, having the the softer backing on my sanding sticks has really made life easier.
2: Yeah, I saw one person, I don't remember who it was, but they, so my flat sticks, I, I send both hardnesses. And they actually put one on one side and one on the other and oh. kind of, like, cut the, the radius on the the end. Yeah. So they just move the paper and, like, use one side and then use the other side. So, That's not uh, a bad idea. This, yeah. Uh, not something I thought of, but... I mean, uh, you, you, cool. you kind of got screwed
1: because they should have bought two Sandin Buddies and put one on each side. <laughs> but, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's all right. Um, and then Flying Shark has been... Yeah, they've done a bunch of cool stuff with colors, but they've been playing with textures. And um, I kept giving him a hard time. He kept threatening. They have come through, and I will be getting um, mammoth ivory and carbon fiber. So cool! I've, I, I've gotten all geeked out trying to decide what pattern knife that's going to go on. But I'm really looking forward to literally prehistoric and literally space age together on one knife, like, like that. That whole juxtaposition is just. I'm, I'm excited. I'm. 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 Damn near speechless.
2: The mammoth ivory or mammoth tooth?
1: Um, ivory. Okay. I don't know. But... Now I got to go back and look. I could have sworn he said ivory.
2: Okay. Um, yeah, the, I always really like those teeth. How they have like the different lines and stuff in them too for the molars and whatever. And then. Dan, yep. Other gear talk shout out, self shameless self promotion. Those are my favorite self promotions. Have you have you ever heat been heat treating some knives and they come out warped and you try to shim temper them and you still can't get the warp out? I have, and
1: occasionally I break them, and I cannot think of anything more frustrating. (laughs) Of bent (laughs) knives,
2: yeah. So, I had a whole bunch of my magnacut knives af- out of the cryo that were slightly bent. A couple of them were like super bad and uh I started researching after talking with Dr. Laurent Thomas about some of the things to do. We were, I was getting pretty close to just annealing the whole batch, straightening them and then reheat treating them uh to give that a try. And he told me about this uh guy HSC3. knives Uh, is his Instagram tag, but, uh, he was talking, there was a forum post on blade forms about warping MagnaCut. And he was talking about this like carbide chisel that he uses to straighten the blades. And, uh, I was like, well, hell, I got a ball peen hammer. Let me, uh, go out and I smacked a couple of my, well, my first time I, uh, was technically you applied
1: pressure in a lateral force. (laughs)
2: So I was using my Arbor Press on one of my blades and uh, using the three-point bending method that a lot of people say to do, and uh, broke the back of the tang right off. It was like, well, that didn't work. And I also took a whole ton of skin from my finger off also while I was holding the blade. That was like, all right, this isn't a solution.
1: Oh, it's just a bad solution.
2: Yeah, I was just reading a whole bunch of stuff with uh, with the hammers, and it was like, well, my... I got the snap on ball peen hammer that has a super hardened uh, rear end. So I smacked uh, one of my Nikiris a couple times with it. And it was starting to straighten out. I was like, oh, there might be something to this. And then I smacked it one more time. And the whole front of the Kiri knife shot off the, the front of the anvil. It was like, well, that didn't work. Turns out uh, it needs to be carbide. Um, hmm. And most of the carbide is around uh, 90 Rockwell C uh, 80, 80 to 90 Rockwell C, uh, but the C2 carbide is 90 Rockwell C, uh, and apparently that works great, uh, so if you put your knife down, like, in the shape of a U, and then you hammer it straight down, those little divots from the ball will force that blade down and back straight, uh, and, um, I had a couple of knives when I was grinding them, kind of warped back, but I was able to tap them a few more times and they went right back. And when I ground those uh, second taps back out, the knife was completely straight. So my whole batch of knives is uh, completely saved. I didn't have to go and anneal them, didn't have to re-heat treat them. Um, But long story short, kind of, uh, long story long, I have used a uh, four ounce and an eight ounce ball peen, and uh, I'm starting to make those. Uh, so brazing in a carbide ball on the end of the ball peen and uh, makes a little, little round divot. Uh, the eight ounce ones, with my calculations of hitting it pretty hard, uh, can go about five thousandths uh, deep into the steel, and the uh, four ounce ones are about two thousandths deep both work really good for straightening chef's knives and stuff like that that was uh full thickness it was like 110 thousandths uh thick magna cut so uh gonna be selling those on the website look for those coming soon
1: yeah uh, that's that's double self-promotion i'm sorry we only do yeah. single self-promotion around here i mean we we're well, in out but we're not full sellouts here dude
2: well it's a good thing that i edit the podcast so <laughs> what, what i say go <laughs> I can only imagine
1: how much quality material you deprive our listeners of.
2: If any listeners want it, I can send you the raw footage. (laughs) And that brings us to Dan's Rants. (laughs) What do you got for Dan's Rants today? I got tubes and kitchen knives. Look, dudes,
1: I know a lot of y'all were making bushcraft knives. And then you looked over and said, holy, people are making a bunch of money. Doing chef's knives. I'm going to make me some of them chef's knives. Dude, chef's knife is not a bushcraft knife. Take a minute, do some research. Quit putting tubes in kitchen knives. See, there's this thing called hygiene. And when you get nooks and crannies and places that it's hard to wash, you get bacteria and funk and nasties growing in there. And oddly enough, you don't want that in a food prep area. All right. Tubes, nooks, crannies, those were all bad on chef's knives. They're awesome on outdoor knives. Do it all you want on outdoor knives. But on your chef's knives, keep them smooth and clean and easy to clean.
2: Mm -hmm. Yep. Make sure you get all those uh, coarse grind lines out of there, too. Uh, Let's keep them.
1: That's a whole other rant. Matter of fact, I'm I'm making a note because that's going to be like a three-part rant. (laughs) Oh, man, nothing sure. drives me more nuts than seeing machine marks in kitchen knives.
2: Yeah. But get those things uh, up to 600 at least.
1: Yeah. And I'm I'm going to go ahead and segue in uh, just because we're trying to keep it classy. Um, we're we're going to go ahead and do Dan's book corner as well. I know I want to get to the guest. You want to get to the guest. I'm sure he's got some th- comments he wants to make. But, you know, we're trying to maintain a certain level here. Um, tonight I want to talk about A Fighter's Heart by Sam Sheridan. Uh, it was kind of an interesting concept. The, the author wanted to know what makes a person, a thing, a fight. What, why would you fight? And he goes to Thailand and studies Muay Thai. He works with, uh, he works in the camp of an American boxer that's getting ready for the Olympics he spent some time in asia with on uh, with a guy that trains fighting dogs he he goes in depth on a couple of of different uh, different ways that people fight to try to find what is that core that makes a person willing to fight that makes a person willing to make scratch over and over um and he actually immerses himself into the the culture somewhat not the i mean He's a writer, not a fighter, so not every, I mean, short version is, it's not about him, it's about the subject of what makes a person willing to fight, an animal willing to fight, and it's a, a pretty fascinating book, um, and that's uh, A Fighter's Heart by Sam Sheridan.
2: Nice. You're, you've really been uh, reading the books the last few uh, episodes, huh?
1: Yeah, I, I got to be totally honest. I I don't read so good. These are um I have read one book between okay, most of okay, half of a book between the last episode and now. Uh some of these are books that I've I've read in the past or just general books that that I think our listeners would find interesting. Cool. Yeah, dyslexia. It sucks. But it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Okay. You know, um, tonight's guest, I probably did him a little bit of a disservice. I, I probably owe an apology. And if I was the kind of person that apologized, I absolutely would. Um, but I'd had a drink. I couldn't pass on the chance. It's actually triple B handmade, but um, I, I couldn't pass. So I'm sorry, Sean. How you doing tonight?
3: You were good, man. B-b-b- beautiful. <laughs> if I didn't love you before, I do now. <laughs> I see why you told me to pour a couple fingers. Huh? Um, hey, the more you drink, the funnier I
1: get.
2: Right it's on. true. <laughs> right on. So one of the one of the first questions we always like to start out with our guests is, where did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Portland, Oregon. Okay. You hmm. uh, live there your whole life or?
3: Yeah, I was actually just born over at uh, Portland Adventist Hospital. So I've, I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I've mm-hmm. moved. I don't live in Portland anymore. It's kind of a uh, different place. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yep. An undisclosed location. Yeah. <laughs> For my safety. <laughs> nice. What what was your first knife? Do you remember that uh, all important first knife growing up? You know, the first knives
3: I got, they sucked. I I wanted a locking folding blade. I was very explicit with my grandma and she they had like a no weapons policy. Like grandpa was in the war, like World War 2 and there's no weapons like at all. And so I would get the little Swiss Army knife that didn't lock in place, and I was so ungrateful as a child. I was like Yeet! <laughs> but, Doesn't lock. Like, I mean, I didn't see the. I was like, "Why would you make something like that?" I didn't have anyone to teach me how to use the knife. Like, you don't you knife like my fingers, walls. Grandma? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's what I thought. I was like, ain't <laughs> nobody, you. There's no way to lock. It's gonna close on my fingers. I don't want that." Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, was that the little one that had like the? Little scissors that you could barely use, and then, like, the nail file. And don't forget and the Yeah, blade. I
3: hated the nail file. I was like, man, this is dumb. There's, it's not even another blade. It's just, a, what, for doing my nails? It's for girls, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, I use that all the time. Uh, well,
3: <laughs> older and more mature, right? I mean, when you're a little <laughs> kid, you're just like, oh, man. <laughs> good save. Good save. <laughs> okay,
1: so for people that haven't heard the podcast before, there's the Dan Kyle scale. Now, Kyle met his wife through an online dating service. I met my wife by picking her up at her grandmother's funeral. So how did you <laughs> meet your wife, and where does it fall on the Dan-Kyle scale?
3: Not sure. I've known, I've known her since the fifth grade, since I was in the fifth grade, and then we didn't start dating until after high school. So...
1: Yeah, that feels pretty Kyle to me. That's that that that's okay. Apple pie, nothing that makes the family uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, congratulations. Nothing to take away from it, Matt. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to put you in a uh, team Kyle there.
2: Oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> right on. What's up, Kyle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The your face there was priceless, <laughs> Tantor. oh man birds gotta
1: fly fish gotta swim I gotta be me
2: (laughs) so uh, so after you got done with high school did you go to college or did you uh, what'd you end up doing and did you start making knives right away after that or
3: no no I was pretty reckless after high school I liked skateboarding and playing paintball and I was on paintball super goofy I was on a paintball national team and we'd fly and play Dan now Okay. (laughs) I thought that was rad, but I had to figure out what I wanted to do. So then I went back to school to be an EMT and I did that for eight years.
2: Wow. Very cool. One of my friends did some EMT work. Yeah. Those guys, crazy hours and they'd always see crazy stuff where I, where I
3: grew up. Oh, it's, it's all across the, it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, if you're going to run calls uh, with EMS, you're going to see some wild stuff, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So after high school, uh, the hospital actually bought the whole paramedic division from the the city of Columbus. Um, so the, the uh, all the paramedic stuff used to be through the firefighter, like, budget, and then became privatized. And they said it was, like, completely different after that. A lot of them switched over to being just firefighters or whatever after that, but...
3: I mean, it's uh-huh. interesting. It's different in, like, every area where some areas the fire department does it, some areas it's privatized, and you have all these companies in the same area competing, or they'll get a contract for that entire, like, county and stuff like that. So my area was uh, privatized, and there was a private company that ran okay. the medical transport, but you still had fired police, of course, that show up for the 911 call, and then uh, EMS would do the transport, and that's where I worked, was a company that did the transport. Okay,
2: so is that... Like in Columbus, I know they had like a private company that did, like, separate of the hospital that did all the transport from like nursing homes and stuff, doctors' visits, or whenever they had. Yeah, you had two. You had the non-emergency,
3: which is like you know when I was fresh out of school, that's where you start, and then when you get a little more experience, you can move to the nine-one-one system. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's the same company. Okay,
1: buddy of mine's an EMS uh, or an EMT. Sorry, and uh, you know what's what's the the one pocket of joy in this. In your job, and I expected, you know, saving lives. That moment, he's like, uh, When I Narcan somebody, like, what are you talking about? He goes, Oh, the look in their eye when they know that I'm about to ruin a $2,000 high it's the greatest thing in
0: them.
3: <laughs> it's messed up, too. Like, they'll be like, their family and their, their family and stuff will be there. And it's like, they're like, There's no way they're clean. They're clean. And you're like, This drug only works yeah. if they're doing that. <laughs> so it could be like we had one call it was pretty tragic you know we're like <laughs> like regressed and the only way we, we could bring him back was give him the Narcan and we're like listen the only way this works is if they did that and they were just like heartbroken the family <laughs> so it was like all
2: right? yeah <laughs> I can only imagine that's crazy so do you still do EMS stuff or <laughs>
3: no No, <laughs> I, was, okay. I was about to make you use your little censorship thing but uh yeah. no <laughs> <laughs> Go
2: for it. Hey, you know, we're allowed uh, one per show. Oh, right on.
0: Well, it's a trap! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: So, so do, you do you do knives full-time, or are you? Yeah, I just do the knives full-time. I sell uh, sharpening stones,
3: and I, I sell knives. I, you know, I mostly just work on, like, a, I don't make big volume of knives. I just make, like, a few knives. But I really like to focus on the small details of those, and, and then I do a little bit of consulting, too. Okay. <laughs>
2: So how'd you get into knives and knife making?
3: It was sharpening. Sharpening. I just, uh, you know, I I got a bunch of junk knives. I didn't really understand how, like, that stuff worked and all the different steels. And I thought, okay, you spend more money, cuts longer. Okay, I'll just buy the cheap knife. I'll write how many cuts I uh, do on there (laughs) so I get the most value out of it. And when it goes dull, I'll throw it away. Because I didn't understand that, like you could sharpen them. Like I thought as sharp as they are from the factory, uh, you can't reestablish that because you have to use a pull-through sharpener, which suck. And so uh, once I learned how to sharpen, just mine was blown. And I just, I went crazy. I just went completely crazy with it. That was when I was like, uh, what, like 20, (laughs) 23? Okay. No, 20,
2: I think. So you started sharpening when you were still doing EMT stuff then?
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I would sharpen for all the guys and stuff at work. I was like the knife guy. <laughs> it yeah. It was fun. There's one in every
2: crew. Yeah. Yeah. And I did that a lot for my my engineering buddies. Uh, when I was working at Cummins, one of the guys was using one of those pull through sharpeners, and he's like, "I just can't get this nick out of here." I'm like, "Yeah, with the pull through <laughs> sharpener, you're never going to get it out because it's always like <laughs> drops down and it just yeah like, yeah just right on It just getting wider
1: for some reason."
2: he knew exactly when it happened because uh so at cummins they get a lot of these boxes and they put the like big cardboard staples in there to help hold the boxes well the company that shipped a whole bunch of stuff put tape then over top of it and you couldn't see the staples so he just like started to bring brought his knife right through there and smacked a staple and it just put a huge like chip right in there so had to take it out with a stone
1: so, uh, where do you get the inspiration for your designs?
3: Inspiration. I mean, I'm I'm literally like making them and feeling them in my hand as I go. You know, and I I like kind of like organic shapes. I like stuff that you can you can grip in a lot of different positions. Like, there's not like a finger groove, giant finger grooves, and stuff where you can only hold it in one position. And so, I like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I like I like user knives. You know, I like stuff that it's easy for me to get access to the edge and sharpen. It's really thin. Cuts nicely, sharpens good. So, I don't know. So, I'm not sure if I answered that question instead of rambling there. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs>
1: Part of my job as a host is to bring you back on uh, on point. So, would you say like more <laughs> organic shapes, you know, leaves, water? Yeah, I, li- I like that old
3: world stuff, man. I like that like 1800s, like uh, uh, trapper type stuff, like Oregon Trail, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah. Man. I think that stuff is rad.
1: Kind of the stripped down, really simple working tool.
3: Yeah, I love the idea of something that looks really simple, and then like you don't know what like what's inside of it, you know. And it's got some supercharged steel and crazy geometry and all that stuff that you know, looking from the side, you can't really see it. You're just like, oh, this looks like another boring old timey knife or something. And then you pick it up, and it's just like a total sleeper. (laughs) I can get
2: behind that. Thanks, man. what What knife do you use the the most? Use a lot of kitchen knives or you uh mainly mainly do I like all. kitchen knives.
3: Like I've got this 10 d kitchen knife here, and I made this just for me. I've had this for a couple of years. You can see it's kind of got the little patina and stuff on there. But yeah, the kitchen knives. I, I like kitchen knives, man. Uh, I like fixed blades too, I like hunting type knives, bushcraft type knives, stuff like that. I like folders, but I don't make any. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's that's a whole new world. Mm-hmm. Like I, I stuck my little tippy toe in there and said, "Whoa, wait, I'm not ready for this." <laughs>
3: yeah yeah <laughs> Stop, man.
2: Yeah, i've got one that's about 70 percent done that is probably never going to get finished <laughs> started it Part, did it I like six years
1: ago pocket jewelry yeah we'll see it's where the money is i don't blame yeah. you i yeah. mean i'm jealous i don't blame you but i'm jealous <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah
1: um What's, uh, what's your favorite knife, um, either that you made or somebody else did? You know what? Actually, I'm not letting you off. Eat. Okay. What's your favorite knife, and what's your favorite knife that you didn't make?
3: Favorite knife I didn't make. I think uh, that's really tough, man. I'll just, I'll just talk about whatever comes to my mind. I mean, this could change if you walk up and talk to me. So don't, don't hold against well, people me. People will. I mean, I, I'm sure they will, but the they don't. All the time. <laughs> They can calm down. <laughs> but my favorite, I think, first comes to my head, it's not mine, probably the uh, Malaninka Pucco. Uh, he's this guy named uh, Daniel out of Croatia, and he made and still makes one of the most beautiful pukos I think I've ever seen. And I had a small part in getting him uh, steels like 4V and M4 and having them heat treated and sent over to him, and he made the pukos out of it. So it was like this nice synergy between... State-of-the-art, high-performance steel, and then these just beautiful classic lines of an old Finnish-type uh, wood carving knife. Uh, super cool. I, I, I like that a lot. I don't make any pukos. I almost feel like I don't do it out of respect or something. I don't know.
1: <laughs> that was when I, when I started in Andy Roy's shop. But it, my first assignment was, you got to be able to tell me what a puko is and make one. Wow. And that, that was my test to see if I would do the research, could learn other people's styles. So the the pukos always kind of held a, a special place in my heart.
3: Nice, man. Yeah, those are those are exquisite knives uh, the saying is, you know. <laughs> a puko is a knife but not all knives are pukos. You know, a Pucos is kind of a specialized knife. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you'll if you're a puko snob, you know, you'll see somebody who's the fuko and you look at it and you're like that's not a puko.
1: <laughs> you call that a fish tail. <laughs> <laughs> The, what's the uh, what's your favorite knife that you either the pattern or specific knife that you've made?
3: Uh, I've got the pattern, and I think I make it just because I like the way it looks. I don't know if necessarily it's everybody's favorite, but I just I just like the way it looks. I like this kind of a uh, semi Skinner type shape mm-hmm. where the nose of it comes up kind of like a bull nose, and I just I just like that man. You know, I don't have mm-hmm. a finished one. I need to make one for myself actually, because that's kind of my favorite. Uh, I don't really have a good reason for you. I just like all that belly. When I look at it, it's very pleasing to my eyes. and I just keep yeah. making them because I like them. I think I sell the other ones faster, the different patterns I have, but I kind of just make this one for me. <laughs> and if it sells them, that's cool. <laughs> I
1: like the yeah. kind of the, the counter curve from the handle to the, the belly?
3: Yeah, yeah, I found that's important for, like, uh, getting the kydex retention, and then it, this gets it out of the way so you could sharpen freehand on the stone. That was really important. Oh, yeah. For freehand sharpening. Yeah.
1: Which is the, the highest form of sharpening, we can all agree.
3: I mean, you know, I used to be <laughs> the biggest freehand snob of all time, uh, but I had to work with uh, Dr. Laren Thomas on those catcher blades, and I was like, dude, I want to be a part of that. He's like, dude, you can't. These can't be freehand sharpened. Yeah, and you know, my ego is like, yes, they can. You know, but I understood what he was talking about, where it has to be like, you've got to rule that out. Like any, if, yeah. if everyone if you're going us, back and looking at anything, you got to be able to say, hey, these were sharpened with this. They weren't just sharpened well, by this guy.
1: And they so. all had to be exactly twenty degrees. Fifteen. Yeah, I was
3: just randomly picking a number. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. supposed to say you're testing me. Come on, Dan. <laughs> that was Nobody, would <laughs> Nobody would have bought <laughs> it. Nobody. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh that was interesting. I mean, I love freehand. I'm all about it. But my eyes have been opened as far as like, hey, maybe turn down the snobbery a little bit. You know, there's different ways of sharpening. They do different things. It looks like so.
1: I freehand because I think I was six or seven years old when my dad sat me down in front of the oil stone and said, "All right, here's how you're going to sharpen." Wow! But for precision, like if you want to know that it is eighteen degrees all the time, every time, I get it. Um, I freehand sharpen because that just feels right to me. Oh yeah! But I get, it. you know, I used to think of it as a crutch, like you haven't learned a free hand, so you use this.
3: Exactly, exactly. That's where I was at too.
1: Kind of to your point, I've now started to appreciate that. No, they want the precision of it's going to be this exact angle every time.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like when you're on this side, you're, you're making a product. So you have to do that. I feel almost, you know, but if you're on the user side, I mean, for the love of God, please don't think that you need to like sit there and jig it all up and do all the, you know, calculations. and st- I mean, that to me, that sucks the fun out of it too. Like, it's just nice to just go and grab a stone and, you know, it's like, dude, shut up with the mumbo jumbo. Just let me get the stone and sharpen this thing up and get back to work or do what I'm doing you
1: know you're you're not an eye surgeon you're not going to feel the difference between 15 and 16 degrees
3: that's true but then when you start doing controlled testing and you're like okay i'm trying to isolate the steel and i'm trying to see the difference between this steel and that steel and they're off by a degree then that's probably going to be that's going to be a huge factor oh that's important
1: what i tell a lot of people when they go to sharpen my knives or when i teach sharpening classes i'm like don't worry about what angle i put on it if you freehand whatever the angle that is comfortable for you to freehand sharpen it at that because it's going to wind up there anyway so the first time you go to sharpen it go ahead and use a coarse grit set the angle that's comfortable for you and
3: then use it like that for the
1: rest of your life
3: yeah yeah you don't it's almost like right right brain people and left brain people and i feel like more people that cook <laughs> and stuff are right brain people they're just like they don't need the numbers and i you know you make all those kitchen knives and stuff dan and with those guys, it's just like, yeah, just you just sharpen it. Uh, if it's too chippy, uh, increase the angle. If it's too, you know, not cutting the way you want, just drop the angle. Versus like a left brain person's like, well, how many degrees? You know, like they need the number, like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I think more folding knife people are probably more like, uh, you know, we want the numbers.
1: <laughs> well, that's because they spend all the time calculating the interaction of all the different parts and, and how they – there's kind of a thing in the kitchen industry. There's bakers and there's chefs. <laughs> and the baker will be like, hey, this dough is amazing. How'd you make it? And the chef's like, well, you know, two pinches of this. And they're like, "Um, how many grams are there to a pinch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: That's a great analogy. <laughs> the folder guys also only have to sharpen like three to three and a half inches. They don't have to sharpen... Eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. You know that's another thing too. Like even if so, I I still do the freehand on the kitchen knives. I mean, because it's just like too. Like sometimes when you're grinding these things, you'll get some weird profile thing going on. It's really yeah. nice to just hop over to the stone from the grinder, correct any profile issues, and then go back uh, to grind as needed. Versus if I could only use that fixed angle system with that little tiny one inch wide stone, I mean you probably just make stuff worse.
0: Mm.
3: <laughs> Part of
1: when I teach a class, part of what I will say is once you learn to freehand sharpen, you can sharpen anything, anywhere. Doesn't matter the shape, whatever it is. Once you get the muscle memory and understand the angle to the stone, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have sharpened knives on broken pieces of tile, on a car window, on a coffee mug. Yeah. Um, once you learn that mechanism, you really can't. It doesn't recurve, uh, double curve, it doesn't matter. Whatever the shape of the blade is, once you learn that mechanism of hand sharpening, you can sharpen anything.
3: Yeah, because then everything is just tools. It's not your like uh, way of doing it or the only way you could achieve it. It's just, they're all just become different tools in your in your bat belt. <laughs> <laughs> or bushcraft belt. Yeah, bo- bushcraft belt. <laughs> bushcraft. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, would you guys say that's kind of similar to like uh freehand grinding versus grinding with a jig? Yeah. Cuz I, you know, I, I freehand ground and then I was I saw people would start with a jig. I I had to use a little jig for those catcher plates, but I got to say that was a I you would think that'd be easier. I felt like that was more difficult to use the jig than just doing it freehand, you know? Yeah.
1: The shop I started in was was freehand only and it was like a hard learn to do it right, no jigs. And I kind of – and jigs started coming out, and people were talking about using those to start with. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess it was was before my knee replacement. It was when I was rehabbing from a blown-out shoulder when I was training for nationals. I was working with a really good – the guy had a doctorate in physical therapy. Like, when professional players didn't want anybody to know that they had had rehab, they'd come to this guy. (laughs) Like, he was – And he was talking about braces because, like, he worked with a lot of golfers. And they've got all these things that are supposed to teach you the perfect golf swing. And he said, if you use a brace or a guide, you never develop the muscle memory. Like, you think that that's going to teach you how. But because the guide is controlling your angle, not your muscles, you never develop the muscle memory to hold that angle. Mm. So, a guide—if you want to freehand—a guide is actually not an effective way to learn to freehand, because the guide will set the angle. You'll never learn the the, sm- the fine muscle control to to hold the angle. And I've been back and forth. Like a, I will frequently use a, a guide for scandies, because if you're two degrees off, it's not a scandy anymore. You know when i'm when I'm hand grinding, if I'm a gr- degree or two off, no big deal.
3: That's a short little grind too, and any little nuance it shows up too. people can see how the light reflects off that and stuff and Ugh,
1: look at that <laughs> so I'm, I'm not necessarily opposed to guides, mm-hmm. but if you' con- if you're, if your goal is to be able to freehand and the advantage of freehand is like everything else, once you can freehand, you can grind any shape. Mm-hmm. If your goal is to freehand then the guides are actually gonna be a stumbling block. You just gotta suck it up and expect and understand that there's gonna be some really ugly knives at first and just just freehand. Um if you just wanna knock out some blades or if you are doing testing where you need really precision angles,
3: yeah, use a guide. Yeah, how do you feel, Kyle? What do you uh, what thoughts? So
2: I, I'm kinda of somewhat in between. I use a work wrist and a lot of people so uh, I use a push stick kind of in the center of the platen and then I set the That's the long spine long. of the blade uh, and then drag the, the blade kind of across that work rest. So it's kind of somewhat in between like free hand and a jig. I kind of think of it more as free handing because you learn where to, where to put that push stick at, at the different heights to, and then kind of like twist in your, your hand that you're pulling through to make your grind go more towards the edge or more towards the spine. But yeah, I, I don't really have a problem. I mean, your finished your finished product is the the thing. I it doesn't matter to me uh, how you get there. The uh, my biggest thing more than what you use to actually get the grind there is just to be honest about what you do. If somebody asks you if you use a jig and you do use a jig, say, yeah, I use a jig and like don't don't feel bad about it. Just just don't lie to your customer about how you do it. Yeah, I never understood why there are people that would
3: take so much pride in, in doing one or the other. You're selling the finished product, not the method. I mean, it's not like, oh, because I'm being more inefficient, I'm going to charge you more money for this kind of thing, you know, to me, like, I didn't understand, like, I, but I've tried the jig. I mean, I, I suck with them and, uh, you know, I don't think like my design with these curves and stuff, it's difficult to try to get that into some kind of jig or something. Mm-hmm. So I just, I try to do it because, you know, when you're trying to do this stuff full time, that your mind is just you'd mm-hmm. like to think about other stuff you don't want to sit there and have to hyper focus on what you're doing all the time it gets exhausting mm-hmm. sitting there doing like well, tons of yeah so whatever it takes baby whatever it takes yep. you know you're trying to sell the product not trying to sell hey i want to sell you uh me grinding it for extra long Yeah. <laughs> like who cares
1: <laughs> some people geek out about it being all handmade and when some of the when people start to mass produce some of the jigs on blade forms there was a big blow up about you know that's not really handmade and what i kind of laughed about was the argument that a lot of the stock removal guys that were completely freehand mm-hmm. were using was the same arguments that the abs guys used to use against the stock removal guys
3: <laughs> that's funny
1: <laughs> and then it just kind of gets down to and with technology moving forward it's going to be interesting how we how we define because we're not long from going CAD to tabletop CNC machine to finish Blade. Like, is that a maker? Because he designed it entirely himself. Like, where are we going to, eventually where are we going to start drawing the line of maker, handmade?
3: Versus designer kind of person who doesn't even get his hands dirty. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah, I heard the snobbery. I heard the snobbery in your voice there. My machinist friends, there is nothing wrong with CAD. I'm with you, brother.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of skill and knowledge and stuff that like you don't you don't just take a CAD model and like throw it into a machine and hit go. Like, there's a lot of stuff to be able to make all those tolerances and stuff stack together and uh, huge buy-in yeah. too.
3: I mean, it's not like with the handmade stuff. I mean, you could off the street, you can go buy some Harbor Freight tools and start banging stuff out
2: but like to well, start
3: with the start with that big machine that can machine everything out with CAD and stuff. I mean, there, that's a huge uh, <laughs> buy-in to even get started learning. I feel like mm-hmm. with something like that. And,
1: the, and then one can counter with the skill set that it takes. I mean, all the variables that you're controlling with nothing but your hands.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the, Cause there's some people that are buying the skill as much as they're buying the product. And I mean, you're not, it's not like you just stand in front of a grinder and drag a, drag a piece of metal across it. Yeah. Um, and I guess at some point we start talking about artistry versus production.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say I'd, I'd steer more towards the, the art side than production side. I I think it's impressive, like when you can scale stuff and, and really start getting larger volume. But then, uh you know, for what I like to do, I feel like some of that might be lost. I like to maybe... To keep myself happy, I like to sit there and focus on the little details of, of this or that, which I don't know how to scale that, but I could tone some of that stuff down and then try to scale it. But then personally, I just wouldn't be happy doing it. I would, I would hate doing it because knife uh, making is kind of, you know, eat grit. I, it's not I, the funnest thing I could think of, actually. <laughs> I've
1: done some large batches, and by the time I get to the end of them, I'm ready to just cut my hands off. Like, I love... Five of this, five of this. Like I, I want the new challenge. I want to do something new. If I've got to sit down and make two hundred of something, I mean, believe me, I love paying rent. It's one of my favorite things in the world. (laughs) But at the end of two hundred, I'm almost ready to cut my hands off. Like I, and it's probably part of what keeps me small time is that I like mixing it up. I like to have something new every week.
3: Dude, I could respect that. Like uh, I had a buddy, uh, he's got like a production knife operation. I'm not going to share, but he wanted me to come help out And I had to sit there and crown spines on kitchen knives for like six hours. I was, almost fucking done. You know, I didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I knew right then and there, I'm not cut out to be a production maker or whatnot. He was like, dude, you want to come back and make a little extra money? I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) It's going to burn me out for what I want to do because there's just something. So there's, it's something cool though, when you hit that rhythm and that flow and your hands are like possessed and you're just going through it. But at the end, I was just so exhausted. You know, I mean, If you're wearing those little face masks and stuff too for that long, I don't know how long you guys wear those face masks for. I I can only go probably about three hours or whatnot max (laughs) before I got to take a break, do something else, uh, sand something, you know, like I can't, I I can't wear that thing for six hours and it was hot and sweaty. It was like a little sweat shop inside there and just (laughs) me. If I did that like uh, for a couple of years, I'm sure I'd be deaf, you know, (laughs) even though I was wearing air protection.
1: (laughs) I did full, I'd full face respirator. Okay. That's the way to go. well, I've had some, I've had some eye issues and some, some scary near misses. So I go over protection, mm. um, but you want to talk about hot, um, August in South Carolina and a warehouse with no air conditioning, no with a 2000 degree kiln running. Oh man. There mm. may have been a time that like the spectrum internet business guy cold called my shop and I'm in boots, boxers, a leather apron and a full face respirator. <laughs>
3: whatever it takes baby
1: (laughs) you want to see the look on somebody's face when you walk out you know i've got all the i've got the dust from from all the grinding and i whip the mask off he's like i don't know what you're doing i don't care i'm not calling the cops i just want out of here
3: (laughs) yeah man that's wild. but yeah i think it kind of goes back to freehand versus using the fixed system i mean production versus art yeah you know i mean there should be respect for both i think i think it's always like you get people in one camp or the other and it's like man you got to respect that volume and then if the guy can do the art you got to respect some of the details he can hit you know that just kind of falls to the cracks of when you're trying to hit a volume so it, i was talking
0: about
1: volume one week and my wife said uh how much do you make this week i told her she's like all right rub that on it I'm like you know what
0: that feels better <laughs>
1: Having a little money on it, and all of a sudden, I don't mind so much. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's funny.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: It is a little soul numbing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so, um, when did you start blah, 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 handmade knives? And have you always? you trying to make
3: me spit this out. Come on. <laughs> Perfect timing. Uh, Side note: I've been watching a lot of Between the Ferns lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started this. Uh, I'm trying to remember it kind of, the years kind of blend together. I think 2018 is when I decided I was going to, I was going to leave. I was going to try to start this up from nothing. And I just, I was just super burned out on the EMT stuff. And I just kind of went from there. I mean, I, I knew how to do sharpening, but I just wasn't that great at making the knives. I just kind of like threw myself to the wolves there and started learning as I went. Uh, So 2018 is when I started.
2: So Um. how did you get Triple B Handmade Knives? How did you come up with that as your name?
3: Well, I had a YouTube channel for like several years, and I would do like knife reviewing and axes and stuff like that. And so I would have all these axe videos where I'm chopping like just big oak trees and stuff like that. And guy in the comment section was like, "Dude, you're a Big Brown Bear." He's like, you sh- "Your name should be Big Brown Bear." So I was like, "All right," <laughs> and I changed. I just changed my YouTube name to that, and then uh, people just kept saying, "Hey, yo, Triple P," "Hey, Triple P." So that I was, was like, good. "All right." Triple B Handmade. There we go. Because I I wanted to do – it was going to be Triple B Knives, but then I thought, dude, I love axes, man. Maybe in the future I'll do axes. So if I say Handmade, I'm not limiting myself. Damn, I'm so genius. But, yeah, it's just kind (laughs) of Triple B Handmade. What what do you make again?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I just – I didn't mention it earlier in the episode. Uh, Big – big thing in the cage daily knives realm uh we're now a llc so uh it's cage daily makes uh llc is the the company name and operating as cage daily knives but uh like kind of like you said didn't want it to be like so knife focused because I, I do want to make i make a lot of knife maker tools and stuff uh i feel like that that's uh, an area that I'm always thinking, how can I make this process easier? How can I do this easier? How can I help do this? And, I, you
3: know, I see that too, man. I try to support you. Like I bought that, uh, the that, 30, that, yeah, sanding stick. I want to get that 36 inch one from you. sounds like you got a cool carbide, uh, peening hammer. Yeah. I'll get one of those from you. <laughs> You know, I, I well, think it's just important to kind of serve. support other makers, man. You know, <laughs> three or more cage daily items and you come on the show, dude. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Right on. Yeah. But I'm, I'm all about supporting makers, man, because, man, dude, it's tough, man. Trying to sold, like make knives and make money off them and stuff because it takes time and money to make them. And people forget that. People are like judging your knife by like what steel it's made out of. It's like, dude, I'll sell you a bar of steel, man. Mm-hmm. If you, wanna... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's That's a tough. time. It's a time. And. R&D and little details that go into it of you going back and, oh, that's not good enough or, oh, there's a scratch right there. You know, it's it's stuff like that. And that, that adds up on your time and appraises and stuff like that. No one, no one cares about that though.
2: Yeah. Me being an engineer, I can't just leave it alone every time I'm doing, like when I was hand sanding um, and doing the, the flat, doing, doing the flats for my flat stick and stuff. I'm like, I got to figure out a way to make this easier. And I just started like throwing everything at the wall. Like, (laughs) researched on blade forms everybody or everybody was saying all these different fluids and like stone sharpening oil wd-40 like uh windex everything and it was just like i got i got to figure out how like i like this look so much i got to figure out how to make it easier and uh after about two years settled on those couple of durometers of rubber and um kind of Figuring that stuff out and how it fits my hands easier and make it make it a lot more comfortable. Nice man.
1: Aldo Bruno gave me some great advice or just observation. He said, "People pay for the last ten minutes of your work. They don't care how you got there. They just pay for that last step. Wow. They pay for did you go six hundred grit or four hundred grit? They don't care about all the steps that it takes to get there. They just want that last little bit.
3: Yeah." That's true too, man. And you know what they say, man, no one wants to know how the sausage is made. You know, if you make it look cool and easy and there's just something magic about that and people like magic, man, you know, magic shows sell out in Vegas. So (laughs) they're doing something right. (laughs) Yeah,
2: It always amazes me too. When you agonize over the details and stuff and I do too. And I struggle with perfectionism and when to, when to call a knife finished. Uh, But I, Hmm. I hand it to some of the, some of my customers and stuff. They're like, man, I don't see a single flaw in this. And I'm like, I'm glad you don't.
3: Yeah, that's funny, too, because I'm sure you're probably sick of looking at it, too. So you're just happy to get a fresh set of eyes on it that are just like,
2: oh, yeah. And you're just like, oh, thank God, I'm tired of looking at this one. I want to start the next one. And and, and so I've had a few people say, like, really? what What's not quite right about it? And I'm like, are you sure you want me to tell you? Because <laughs> <laughs> You'll never be able to unsee it. Yeah, I never, <laughs> you'll never be able to unsee it. Just, uh, I've had a buddy that teaches uh,
1: classes. And at the end of the class, when someone finishes their knife, he'll be like, hey, uh, I'll give you 80 bucks for that knife. And they're $80. Do you know how much time and effort I put into this? And they'll lecture for a minute. And then he'll look them in the eye and just say, all right, remember that.
3: Wow that's that's good man because you know that's so funny when you first get started i think probably the most difficult thing is pricing your work is knowing what you could price your work at and what's fair and uh i'll tell you like you start feeling confident about your work uh when it comes time to like put a price on there and put a actually what it's what it went into it to make money off it oh man you're gonna get (laughs) gonna get pretty stressed out man i don't know about you guys sometimes i get a little nauseous and stuff uh when it comes yeah. to like selling work because it has to live up, you know what I mean? To that yeah. money that I want to sell it for so that I'm just, I'm pulling my hair out sometimes going back and sanding something, sharpen it and then go sand it and sand and then fingerprint. And then, oh, I got to sand the handle again. And then I got to sand this part. It's like, ah, <laughs> I'm just going crazy, man. That <laughs> has
1: dragged me kicking and screaming to every price point. Yeah, like, you know, I'll set the price points. It's like, you realize you're going to pay somebody $10 to take this knife. She's like that. That that's not how business works. Yeah, Um, and just and eventually she's be like, um, you know, you've had that same price point for two years, and people are getting an absolute steal. Wow! Like, but it's selling. She's like, yeah, but but look at look at where you were when you started that price point, and look at where you are now. (laughs) Yeah, I struggle to see it. (laughs)
2: It's tough, man one of the things that I always try to ask myself is if I paid $500 for this knife, would I feel like I'm getting a, a good deal on it. Mm-hmm. And that that's helped me feel more comfortable calling it quits on some of those, some of those times. So.
1: That's a good perspective.
2: I think so too, man. Especially if it, you know, it also motivates you to make
3: sure people are going to get their value. Cause you know, you know, more than the people usually that are buying the knife and so when you're like, would I buy this for $500? It's like, you know, all the little things to look for to be like, that ain't you no know, $500 knife. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty good metric to have.
2: Or yeah. I'd rather buy some other knife for 500 bucks or things like that. But it's, I always try to support some of my other knife maker friends, but like, I don't have a ton of money, so... The, the amount of knives that I you're a multi to...
1: knife maker. None <laughs> of us have much money.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're never yeah. gonna have it because it's a you know, you know, here's the
3: thing too, man. It's a team of people for business. Like mm-hmm. you've got all yeah. kinds of so, you know, you've got your gifts cause you can make the knives. But, you know, when you look at these larger companies, there are a team of people, there's, there's numbers people, there's people like, okay, we need to sell for people. this much money to make, you know, you could sell for anything you want, as long as it's not under this, we need at least this to make money, otherwise, we're losing money. And you got all these team people that are helping you out, you know, advertising people, marketing people, but when you're a knife maker, you're on your own, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if you if you got gifts for making knives but you don't got gifts for some of the other stuff, I mean it's pretty miserable.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's why a lot of people drop out of it, only do it for a while, only do it as a hobby, and doing it full time is definitely something that uh is hard. It,
1: it used to drive me nuts because I need to be in the shop making knives to make money. But to do that, I also need to do the accounting, the marketing the PR, but as I'm doing that, I'm not making knives, so I'm not making money. But if I don't do this, I can't sell the knives to make the knives to make the money. And it, it, it's something, well, I still struggle with it, uh, with the, I, I need to get in the shop and make knives. No, dude, you need to take a minute, you need to work on this side of the business, because without this, you can't have the other side.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they say like some of the guys, too, that make like the best knives. Nobody knows who the hell they are. And I could respect that because they're just so busy making the knives. I mean, none of this, you know, stop talking. Just go make the knives, you know. And so they're just focused on doing that and turning out beautiful work and hoping it speaks at the knife show when people walk by their table. And sometimes just people are just walking by because they're walking over to the person who's got more marketing and stuff. And I can understand how for that person, that's
2: pretty frustrating. You know, that's got to suck some of those art knives, like this is the art knife invitational. Like you have to like, you can't just like go to the show. Like you have to like know somebody to like be able to even go to know who some of those people are making those crazy art knives. It's so, so crazy. Wow, they all know each other too. You know, I think they've been doing that stuff for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Or I've heard of a few people talking about, about it and they're like, man, I just can't find some good mother of Pearl. They're like, like, guy hands him a business card with the guy's name on it. Call this guy. <laughs> you know, sometimes,
1: sometimes the old boy network works for good. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of times people complain about it, but sometimes it works like it should be. And in that case, you get the industry guys together and you're like, hey, I, I, really, look, I really need something. Hey, here's my guy. He's reliable. He's responsible.
3: Sometimes it's good though to like those networks can be good because they can kind of screen out like the more Machiavellian people who would just so cutthroat, just you know, shit on everybody, you know, for their own whatever it takes for me to look good, you know. And sometimes those networks, they'll just recognize those kinds of people, be like, nope, I do not deal with you. (laughs) It's one
1: of the things that I love about our small industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Reputation still means so much. Oh, yeah. And I've done some. I mean, it's not big money to some people, but it was certainly big money to me. Deals with like L.T. Wright. I mean, we did a deal for a couple of hundred blades on a handshake, but like there was not a scrap of paper between the two of us. Wow. The only thing backing up either side was just our reputation. Yeah. And I love that this industry is small enough that reputation is still everything. Yeah. And, and to your point, if you're Machiavellian, if you're out there screwing people. You're not going to last long. People are going to figure it out and you're going to get shut out.
3: Yeah, because it's already just a race to the bottom, you know, like uh, (laughs) you've got people trying to sell knives and blister packs for 15 bucks and stuff. And, you know, usually just no one wants to deal with those people. (laughs) We're all trying to like, we're all very passionate about it. We all work really hard at it. And so we're not out there trying to like be super grubby, cutthroat business people like we should be to probably take care of ourselves. Right. I mean, but... (laughs) I don't know. It it's a cool it's a really cool community to be a part of, I would say.
1: Yeah. I still got to look at myself in the mirror.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I first started out, I I felt the need to justify some of the prices I was charging for my knives and I easily charged like twice as much as I did on those first knives and I I was having to justify the first knives price and I I purposely like didn't charge nearly as much as I should have on those first ones because I knew they weren't weren't quite the standard that i i wanted for a, to demand a higher price point and but you gotta you gotta sell them at some point to make make money to buy the the next stuff so
1: make it to your point make it of a quality that it's worth that price and then don't apologize
0: mm-hmm.
1: you, i mean if your grinds are square and true and symmetrical And your handle is symmetrical. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, make it worth that price, but don't apologize for asking for a fair price.
3: Yeah, I think my whole thing is I got to look myself in the mirror and and just tell myself, like, I did the best I can possibly do in this moment in time. I think it's hard because, you know, especially if you're newer like myself, like, what if I'm still doing this in 10 years and now is going to be. That much better, you know. I hope, <laughs> but usually it seems like with time, you, you know, stuff you didn't know in the past, and so yeah. you know, you can kind of look back on your old work and be like, "Dang it, I didn't know that." But you know, you can only do what you knew in that moment, and as long as you're striving for your own personal best, uh, you know, i i I don't I don't bat an eye about the price I sell the knives at. I try to tell myself I'm doing my best, which which is already just stressful, and that's not perfection. It's just my personal best. It's, perfection's impossible. But if I can just do my personal best and, and stress about that, I mean, how hard is it just to do your best at something, right? How often it's like, ah, I'll go a little bit close to best, but maybe not, you know, all the way there. So some, even for me, I get lazy. It's And it's sometimes a push to to get it right at, at my actual physical best uh, that I can put out. But, you know, when I when I know what I have to sell the knife for, it, it pushes that last hump Man, I get stressed out about that. I'm like, oh, OK,
2: let's let's get it up there. <laughs> One of the things um, that's really helped me, just like know how much better I've gotten at grinding, is once I come off the disc sander, go into hand sanding. Like I used to spend thirty to forty five minutes per side, easy on a on a good one, and now uh, on a good one, I'm I'm doing five maybe ten minutes uh, wow. of hand sanding mm-hmm. per side on a on a bigger kitchen knife. And uh, I hear like some of the small folder guys say they they spend like four hours hand sanding a blade i'm like it's only three and a half inches three three and a half inches long like what are you doing
3: <laughs> so it's it's yeah. tough man like bad respect to you guys you guys seem like you're making a lot of knives and a lot of good good looking knives and stuff and you know it's that's a skill i think to like be able to to be able to be efficient in what you're doing
2: yeah i think <laughs> i i just put uh i'm at 318 now That I've made. So I serialize each one, put the put the number on there. Um so those are all ones that got actually finished with a handle. So nice man.
1: And I had talking about as you grow your skills increase, the value of your knife increases. I had a mentor that said never take more than about eight months to a year back order. And at the time when he told me that, I'm like, geez. (laughs) Like I'll ever get to eight months or a year back order. But his argument was if you let your orders get too backed up, they're paying last year's quality for this year's skill.
3: Interesting. Wow.
1: You know, at some point, remember your skills, no matter where you are, your skills are always going to be improving. Mm -hmm. Um, So make sure that your pricing keeps up with your skills as they improve. That some guys will blow up and they'll get three years back ordered. And they're selling this year's skill set at prices for three years ago.
3: Wow. Yeah, I never think about stuff like that, huh? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, on some of the things that, that you think about, um, what are some things that you would do differently? Like when you started out, when you committed that I'm going to be a knife maker, what are some things that, uh, that you would do differently? And I'll go ahead and give you the freedom to also say, What are some things that you're glad you did? What are some things you did right?
3: Well, one thing I'm glad I did right was just making that step, man. Like, (laughs) uh, That's kind of a tough decision to make if you're going to do something with with knife making. And uh, I made that first step. Uh, I took up the challenge. And so I'm proud of myself for that. Some things I would have done differently is uh, I was super obsessed with sharpening and heat treatment. So I wanted to like fine tune a bunch of that stuff. And I didn't understand in the beginning that I should have been making heat treatment coupons, not full blades. And so I would just <laughs> bust out all of these blades and I would heat treat them and then I would test them and then they sucked. So I can't sell them. So now I have just piles and piles and piles of, but now I got pretty, it's good training uh, cause you get pretty good at like, you know, blanking them out, like scribing around, drilling the holes, like I could drill holes like a champion now, but <laughs> But uh, that would have saved a lot of time and money, I think. Uh, but, you know, maybe you're just paying for your own training there. But I could have, I could have done it in a more efficient way, I would say for sure. Uh, it just, there's something about like, that emotional excitement of what I'm doing is going to turn into a blade. Because they always say you should practice like grinding mild steel and stuff like that. But there's just no emotional investment to finish it and make it look nice because you know it's not going to turn into a hardened blade. Versus even though yeah. you're wasting steel, like if <laughs> the end you're like, I did it, I made a knife and it's a piece of junk because you're learning.
2: But <laughs> I mean, if you just Went use out. 1084, that, that yeah. like the cost of it versus mild steel isn't isn't that much uh, yeah. in the grand scheme of it. I mean, you're going spend, to spend all that time and effort with your hours and everything putting into it. Like you might as well at least have a knife that's 1084 or, instead of mild steel. You know, and you're a new
3: guy too. I mean, you'll go to like a place like Alpha Knife Supply, great company, you know, and they sell like 12 inches of steel and stuff. You know, you can get bigger too. And you'll buy like a little stick of 12 inches because you're just like, ah, oh, I'm just not going to use that much. But really, you should be going to like New Jersey Steel Baron, go buy like four feet of steel, you know, a couple yeah. bars of four feet and just tell yourself, I'm going to ruin all this. You know, I'm just going to learn how to do this <laughs> because that's yeah. just more efficient. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And as far as like profiling, my first apprenticeship, the minimum standard like that we had to work to was, I think it was eight to 10 minutes a blade. So you should be able to do six to seven blades an hour profiling. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would just pile up the steel and you just had to go at it. And you don't learn that kind of proficiency on mild steel or wood. You Mm -hmm. might learn the technique, but you're not going to learn the proficiency, the efficiency that you need to be able to make money unless you take decent steel and learn how to crank it out
2: yeah interesting each each one of them grinds a little differently like uh, when i was blanking out the magna cut and doing the profiling i do all my profiling kind of horizontal perpendicular to the belt i noticed like with it sitting on my work rest like it would get like a burr that would kind of go up like down on the work rest that was something i had to figure out how to kind of deal with uh, when I'm moving the, moving the blade around for the profile. Don't notice that nearly as well.
3: that possible. a wheel? Is that a wheel you're using too, or the platen?
2: Yeah, it was uh, a flat platen uh, for that section. Hmm. When I was using the ten or my 10 inch wheel, I didn't notice it nearly as much, but yeah. I know
1: Magna Cut um, grinds really nicely annealed and it does not throw the sparks on too bad.
2: I yeah. like the sparks makes me feel like it's doing something. <laughs>
1: well, yeah. But man, you get some of the simple tin series and you get like the shower. Um, yeah. you know, Magna cut doesn't throw a lot of spark. They're not a lot of hot sparks. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty easy to work annealed. hardened. It's a uh, Kyle. You're going to need to get the bleat the button ready. Cause, um, the Magna Cut
3: hardened is a <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing. <laughs> I
1: did some one sixteenth or uh yeah, some one sixteenth inch blades and I was set in bevels with thirty-six grit belts. I mean it's just insane.
3: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean for me this stuff was a godsend. I mean all the materials I've been used to working with were just a complete nightmare. So when it came to this steel that people were going to want to buy, it has these balanced properties that would be easy for me to grind in the, you know even hardened even all the way up to like sixty four sixty five. I was stoked, man, especially for hand sanding. Like the the other yeah. stuff I deal with is just like a nightmare. <laughs> so when it came to like working with MagnaCut with those really fine carbides, oh my god, <laughs> it was, it was well, wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I jumped from S thirty five to MagnaCut. So, I mean, I had done a little bit of M4 and a little bit of that other stuff, but mm-hmm. um, there was a little bit. I I was used to powdered steel, but that was a that was a pretty significant learning curve for me.
2: Yeah, I I haven't noticed or it is a little bit harder, but I haven't noticed it grinded too terribly different from like 154CM and stuff that I or CPM 154 that I've been been using, especially using the the ceramic belts.
1: Yeah, the uh, I've been impressed with the purple belts, especially because you know I've I've been on Norton's tracking. Like, yeah. man, I don't know what changed, but their tracking has been crap. Yeah, the purple belts cut really well. Okay, so we've gone like completely off the show notes. So I'm gonna try to bring us back onto um, what were some of the most surprising challenges uh, when you start setting up your business or trying to grow it. What were some things that kind of caught you?
3: You know, I mean, I, I started with a, the with a Grizzly uh, 2x72 grinder, a lot of people maybe start out with. That's where the
1: big down there came from.
3: The well, buffer that, grinder. The yeah. buffer grinder, exactly. And so one of the biggest challenges for me was just getting the money for a real grinder. And I didn't understand the whole VFD thing. I remember reading about it. And I I didn't understand it. I was like, oh, I'll just use a light touch and, you know, I'll dunk in water, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. But, you know, man, like once I got the money, once I, that was just a huge hurdle. Uh, and then once I got there, it was like everything just made sense. It was like you only use the VFD, you know, you drop to 30 you put the platen on because that thing that had the worst tracking ever. I was literally grinding a knife and I would hold the the control knob for the tracking at the same time. <laughs> I sent a knife to a buddy. Wow. He was like, he had a grinder like that too. He's like, how'd you get these plunges so clean? And I didn't have the heart to tell him. It's like because I'm sitting here like this, like <laughs> spending like two more extra hours just to make sure it looked better, you know. So that sucked really bad. But once I got the nicer, I got a Fear four five four grinder. The guy's local to me here in Oregon. So it was, it was the obvious choice, man, and I, I got to say that's super sweet too. Because whenever you need something, you can call somebody up and be like, "Hey, you know, can I stop by and pick this up?" So that's mm-hmm. super cool. Uh, but yeah, once I got that grinder, that was a huge hurdle to get to, and once I got there, it was just like, "Oh my god, this is great!"
1: <laughs> I started off with the three pulley system, and then it was like <laughs> a real debate. Like, all right, is it worth stopping and resetting the belt and aligning the pulleys, or can I just suck it up and do this? It, wide open speed all right let's try it (laughs) no no i should have i should have readjusted the (laughs) pulleys. yeah
2: any any time you have any uh, little obstacle like that uh it's amazing to me how how lazy i get it's like uh (laughs) going from one to two uh two by seventy twos i so i'll have like an eight inch wheel and a small wheel attachment and there were a lot of times that i should or i should have gone like swapped out the tooling arm and switched it to a small wheel attachment when i just had the one grinder to to clean something up and i was like "Eh, i'll just get that with a file later and then spend 10 minutes with the file getting the shape where i could have done it in just a a second or two with the the small wheel attachment i mean so
1: I'm, i'm putting my pinky up when i say this i acknowledge that it is full snobbery but when i went from one to two grinders like, that was such the how to had not always done this. Really? It was like the jump from going from my Kalamazoo to my K&G. And I'm like, how how did I not always do this?
3: Now, what is that? What is it about the two grinders? Because, you know, for me, it's like I'm, I'm trying to justify all these different costs and stuff like that. And I have one grinder, and it's like, do you buy another grinder? Do you buy another tool arm? Like, what do you <laughs> what do? The, you time, do? Uh,
1: the time that it took in killing my workflow, I mean— oh if you think about like the number of minutes that it actually takes to t- change out a tool head, it's not much. But, and I don't know if this is really a thing, but my workflow, like, man, when, when I'm in the zone and I'm grinding and everything's flowing to be able to take just three steps to the side, go to the small wheel attachment, tuck something up, come back over to the flat platen, or, um, if I'm, if I'm shaping on the 8-inch uh, wheel and I need to get a tight radius to be able to step over to a 1-inch wheel and then come back.
3: Okay.
0: I,
1: I mean, if you broke it down by like a technical work time study, it may not be that much time. But from workflow, to be able to just keep things moving, it's, it's a huge difference to me.
3: Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I can get down with that. I mean, it, it almost seems like to like the more times you get taken out of flow, it's just like, you're not going to get finished with it. Something else will come up and, and take it out versus when you're in flow you're just ignoring everything and you just, you're getting it yeah. done.
1: Oh, okay. Engineer Kyle, who has actually done the time work study. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Go ahead and chime in. <laughs> so, so the biggest part so I, I don't notice it too terribly much on the actual grinding of the bevels and stuff that I, I pretty much just use a flat platen or a radius platen. And that is what it is. But doing the handles is where uh, it cuts my, my handle time down significantly. So I mainly use a eight inch wheel to put in a lot of the curves in the sides of my yeah. handles. So I'll, I'll do the curves and uh, some of the radius and then I'll go right over to the, to the small wheel attachment and do like the bottom side where your your fingers go. And then I can put that knife to the side and it's like completely done for all the rough shaping. And then when I swap out my eight inch wheel to like a one inch wide scallop belt, when I am getting rid of all those scratch marks and stuff, because I usually use a 60 grit when I'm rough shaping and I can just go back and forth between the slack and the small wheel to, wow. to touch anything up it just goes so much quicker and you don't have to like put the knife to the side and say okay when i swap out the the slack belt and use the small wheel and then come back to the slack belt you aren't in that loop a whole bunch okay. does that now, make you sense make a
1: good, yeah you make a good point handles is where i notice it the most blades you know you, you whatever platen you're working you're working but the handles it is where I noticed it the most.
3: That's a good point, man. Like I was taking, uh, I'd put like the small wheel attachment on, and I was trying to just use the slack area on the top or the bottom to clean that mm-hmm. up, which is kind of mm-hmm. awkward. But I was, you know, what other choice did I have? But once I started, like actually, just okay, I'm going to take the time and, and make this easier for me to do. I put my platen on and take the platen off, so you just you can press into that slack area. Oh, my God! it was so much easier, you know what I mean, so I could see yep. why you would have two grinders set up for something like that,
2: yeah, and they it just like I'm able to to crank out the the handles so much faster, like it it boggles my mind uh how how much better that is, and then
1: it's mind boggling you you don't mind me saying yeah
2: having having a grinder that tilts horizontally uh for my surface grinder attachment, I don't really use my surface grinder attachment to. grind the blades at all Mm -hmm. i use it for cleaning up my handle scales so uh, i'll cut them on the the table saw or whatever and i'll flatten the one side And i usually do different liner colors and stuff and i don't worry about nailing the actual thickness that i want right off the table saw or the bandsaw i cut them a little bit bigger and then i use some double-sided tape uh with on a steel piece that magnets on to that surface grinder attachment and then i use the belt to get them to the three eighths or quarter inch or whatever thickness I want those scale set to be. And they're both matched the exact same. So when I actually put some drops of super glue uh, around the outside to hold them together when I drill my pinholes, so they stay Mm -hmm. perfectly together, just don't have any problems with making or like, because if you, before I would was like using my disc grinder and I'd like measure all the corners with the, the caliper making sure that i'm not like off and i just stick it right to the plate put it right on the surface grinder and then in 60 seconds that handle set scale set is ready to get taped to the to the knife and get drilled
3: nice man i love the surface grinder I've, I've got one too the obm uh origin blade maker or whatever mm-hmm. i don't have my grinder that turns to the side so it's like this arm workout i I put my hand underneath just to help out because when i first got it i was doing this like the bow
2: flex or something dude i Uh was like
1: yeah you you got that gun show going
2: on Yeah. (laughs) laren had a had a hilarious video of him like going overhead he was like so tired from grinding coupons or whatever it's
3: hilarious i mean that guy's a machine dude i mean to think about like all those little data points you see that he does He's down there by himself, just meh meh, 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 running that thing, you know, and everyone's just like, oh, cool, 65, 60, okay, I got the numbers, thanks, dude. You know, skim through the article, not even read the full thing. It's like, hey, come on, you yeah. know, this guy put in a lot of work here. <laughs> yeah. You know, not,
1: I didn't know that you use the surface grinder for your handles. I'll flatten the sides that are going to the tang and don't worry about the thickness on the sides. Mm. Um, as long as it's flat, I'll... Even if it's asymmetrical, as long as the thin side is thicker than the absolute widest part of the handle, is going to be the thickest part of the handle. Um, I clean, I clean that uh, the lack of symmetry up when I shape the handle.
0: Okay,
1: because um, I, I also, yeah, I make a, I've got a, um, a pattern. I made little one sixteenth inch G ten patterns, and they fit. A, I'll line them up along the spine of the blade and then trace it, and then flip the knife over, put it up against the tang, and trace it. And that gives me my outside lines. And then I shape to that to true the two handle sides up.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I just, with the the different liner thicknesses and whatever, I cut them and then get it to be right on three-eighths or whatever I'm wanting to hit after. So usually it's like... 0.4 0.4 or a little over and then i just take like 25 thousands off and it just cleans up any anything because i i put them all together so i want it to be like a flat or a very flat rectangle when i'm drilling the holes straight down uh because yeah. if it's angled then those holes don't want to line up uh yeah. when you put take a take them apart and put them on both sides of the tang
1: yeah, well, and I guess that's, I've gotten kind of lazy because I was a woodworker before I was a knife maker, so I have a really, really good cabinet saw. Mm-hmm. So when I rip my handles down, they tend to be pretty, pretty square and true. Yeah. And That may be, the, that may be why I've gotten kind of lazy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, even some of the micardos and stuff, when you buy them, they're not, like if you're, if you buy quarter inch thick or whatever, it's not. I've had it be pretty significantly tapered, especially some of the like uh, non-production made stuff.
1: Yeah, the the low spot that was in a huge sheet actually gets really noticeable when you cut it into four by two or five by two sections.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So steering the ship back into a round. uh, One of the things when I told a few people that we were going to have you on, uh, they were the most excited about you mentioned you were you were pretty about that. pretty snob. <laughs> you said you mentioned you were kind of a snob about uh, hand sharpening and stone sharpening and stuff. They wanted to know more about uh, stone sharpening. So, if somebody was a complete newbie and didn't know where to start with stone sharpening, where should somebody start? Kind of things to read, things to look at, some stones, possibly like a a stone uh, holder, start with stone. things like that.
3: I mean, probably the, the first thing, I mean, technique is going to be really important. You can have, you know, probably $10,000 worth of sharpening stones and somebody who's got really good technique. I mean, they can go buy a brick, a red brick from Home Depot I and mean, they would probably better off than you would be. So technique is pretty important. Uh, just going to the motions of making sure you're getting a consistent angle, uh, using things like Sharpie, which is a good sharpening aid to see where you're actually scratching. I mean, at the end of the day, you're just rubbing a piece of metal on a rock. You know, <laughs> but I think there's some nuances there that get people kind of hung up, such as like forming the burr, uh, removing the burr to get a really sharp edge. And where I kind of come in is, uh, you know, I've, I've really geeked out on this stuff. I've been doing freehand sharpening for almost like 12 years now. And so I've, I've really focused on it. I've, I thought it was super important. And what I like to do is I like to find things that work really, really good. And so some of the stones I sell, like right now I have this, uh, the King Neo stone. I don't make that stone. King is the brand and they make it. And that's kind of like a really nice stone to start out with because it comes with the base. It's very user friendly. It's not an incredibly thirsty stone. You can get away with kind of a a rinse and go, kind of run underneath the sink a little bit. Some stones need to be soaked. Some stones are splash and go. This stone's not incredibly thirsty. You don't have to soak it for 10 minutes before you get started. And the stone has got good feedback and cuts really fast. The abrasive material in it's very hard. Uh, it has excellent feedback, so you can actually feel it kind of cutting and removing metal. So that's probably a good stone to start with. It's under hundred bucks. Uh, I recommend that when you get started. Uh, the other stones I sell, they're kind of more premium. They're, they're kind of for people that are a little more geeked out on it. They've maybe tried several different stones. They've got a kind of a good uh, uh, amount of experience underneath their belt, so they can actually appreciate some of the differences. And so that stone's kind of more for them. Uh, I sell those stones, it's like anywhere from a $400 to $450 stone, which people are like, oh my God, how much? But if you really wanted to geek into it, you would see that, you know, a lot of the cost is coming from the materials that the stone is made out of. And so a lot of the times you'll see people, they'll argue the difference between water stones and diamond stones. No, oh, I don't like those diamond stones because it's a single layer of diamond grit. It tears out easy. It makes a really kind of deep scratch. I'm not using steels that would need that. uh, So I I avoid that. I don't like diamond. You know, you'll hear people say stuff like that. But what if you could take a diamond stone and make it work like a water stone where you have kind of those excellent finishing properties. You don't tear out all the abrasive. It's a renewable surface. So if you wear out the abrasive, which diamond's very hard and not as prone to getting worn out and things like that, but everything wears out, right? Uh, It has a renewable surface. So you can just kind of dress it down. You got more stone. You're good to go. And so kind of that's the beauty of that stone is it's it's doing it's kind of defying all the different trade-offs that you would normally get with a stone except it costs more. So if you wanted something with less trade-off, uh, you, obviously you're going to have to pay more for it because they're they're stacking in things that are more expensive when they make that stone to give you and provide you those features.
1: Um and do you see kind of a like when you, if you're using a lot of 10 series steels, a lot of the more simple steels versus when you're using a lot of the powdered steels, like is there, is there a differential in stones of at some point you need to go ahead and invest in the diamond stones?
3: You do. Um, I feel very strongly about that. I think that a lot of people, they're, they're really looking for the absolute smoking gun on that. There's been a lot of people in the community that have done testing, but it's still not enough for some people. Uh, I think the problem is, you know, if I can take this 10V knife, for instance. This is 67 Rockwell 10V. 17% carbide volume. It's all vanadium carbide volume. And I can rub it on a Naniwa Shazera professional stone and you'll see a little bit of metal coming off. And it's like, ha, I did it. I debunked you, Sean. Look at that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need diamond to do that, you idiot. I just did it. You know, but the problem is you're not shaping all the features inside the steel. Like I just said, it's 67 Rockwell, sure. But there's 17% of the volume inside the matrix of the steel are these really hard vanadium carbides anywhere from three to five micron. Okay, and so you're trying to shape that down. What's a sharp edge? We're probably under a micron. So there's kind of a little bit of a challenge there where you're trying to shape your apex down below a micron. You have features inside the steel that are above a micron and you're not able to cut them because the hardness of the abrasive in the ceramic stone is softer than those little particles inside the steel that you're paying for to make it cut longer. So why are you using something that doesn't actually have the hardness to cut the features that you're paying for inside the steel? To me, it's it's obvious. But for other people, they're like, whatever you just said, mumbo jumbo. I just rubbed it on a ceramic stone. You're debunked. So well, it's you a bit, have
1: a PhD level of sharpology.
3: <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. It's, it's really, it, it's the most, I think about it every day. Uh, but, it, you know, it's important because you're losing edge retention. You're paying for it and you're losing it. You're not shaping all the features. You're kind of maybe putting a little more stresses and stuff at the edge. And so even for that catcher project that I was with there You know, and I kind of had some consulting ability with that where I was like, well, we should use, you know, the CBN and all that stuff. And we dialed in the stone that we wanted to use, which was a CBN stone. And it wasn't an electroplated stone. It was actually a metallic bonded stone. And the reason why that stone was selected is because it would offer uh, a really good amount of uh, surface roughness. Usually when you're using these coated electroplated stones, the abrasives, you have a single layer. They're standing up proud and they dig really deeply into the steel which leaves you with a really ragged edge, which people don't like. So when you start moving into these bonded super abrasive stones, like metallic bonded, resin bonded, vitrified, uh, the abrasive is embedded inside of this bonding. And so when you move the metal over it, it's not sticking up all the way and scratching and gouging deep inside your steel. So you're getting a better surface roughness for the given grit. And that's kind of a level of nuance and detail that people just, just whoosh, just they're not thinking about it. You would have to, you'd have to pull them aside and show them, hey, we have these four different stones. They're all the same grit was use all of them, and you could see, look at that, the difference in surface roughness you can observe with your eye. But people like numbers, and uh, I think a surface r- uh, roughness measuring tool is about $1,000, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not ready to invest in that. It sounds like from you guys I need to get another grinder.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I put my mind.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah.
1: I also found once I started going full-time, I could use some stones, and, yeah, they would bring an edge, but it was going to take 45 minutes. And when I had 15 knives to sharpen, the more aggressive stones that yeah they cut deeper. Basically, I went to diamonds because even on the even on some of the 10 series steels, it was overkill. But set it up. Yeah, I didn't have 45 minutes to establish an edge. Yeah. So rather than making 100 passes, I would make 10, and then I'd move to the next grit.
3: Yeah. It would, here's the problem though. Like, so I, I kind of started with the sharpening stuff and those plates wear out super quick. It's a single layer, you know, there's nothing really supporting them. They're like electroplated in there with like nickel bonding. It's easy to put too much pressure and shear off the abrasive. The abrasive never even gets a chance to get worn down. You're just basically shearing it off. So that's why when I sell this, you know, super vitrified stone, you have, it's basically vitrified as a fancy word. It, it's it's like a ceramic matrix. that's holding in a really high concentration of diamond. This is just the base right here. And And, and 400
1: bucks of stone. I'm buying four or $500 stones a year because I'm blowing through them. You're saving money.
3: Yeah, you're saving money and you're getting a better, you're getting a better surface roughness too because you're not digging so much. So it's like, it's it pays for itself and it's faster. So you splash and go. It has a pleasant feedback to it. So you can actually feel it cutting. Versus when you're feeling like on a diamond, it's like scrape, 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 scrape. The feedback isn't as enjoyable. You know, you can yeah, all man,
1: sing. I love, especially once you get up to the higher grids when it starts to sing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know another way to describe that harmonic, but you get that, that really high, smooth resonance.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the,
1: the, that's my happy place.
3: Yeah, so you know th- these stones. I mean, they're for people that really care about those details. I mean, I've never peddled them. I've, I've never like overhyped them to anybody. I've never said, "Hey, uh, hey, you big dummy, you need to sh you yeah. need this to sharpen, or you're not sharpening." Like that's so. Know, this is this is the self promotion episode. Where you <laughs> yeah. <sent>? All right, <laughs> I'll do it then. Hey, you big dummy,
0: you
1: need. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously i mean this is this is a maker specific podcast we've got some hobbyists we've got some other guys but there's i imagine there's guys like me that especially my lower grits where i'm establishing the edge i Mm -hmm. blow through four or five stone diamond stones a year yeah i don't use natural stones because the particle steels i'm using use them will just blow through the stone yeah i mean legitimately um If someone wants to invest in a stone that's going to last, can they go through you for that?
3: Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, this stone was tested for three years before it ever hit the market because it's like, okay, this may be cool, but what is this? What can this do? So, Aton Zias over at the Portland Knife House and Phoenix Knife House, they had been testing them in their shops for like about three years. And these guys hammer through stones, As, as you know. I mean, you sell some, I think I saw some of your yeah. knives there at the shop. I used to work there too. Oh, did you? <laughs> I, I Yeah, I worked as an EMT and I worked there at sharpening. I thought I wanted to be a professional knife sharpener, but that was just like, some of the knives you got, because I, I only wanted to sharpen cool knives. So I thought if you were a professional knife sharpener, you're sharpening so, cool knives. But so, no, you yeah. get a lot of, unfortunately, you get a lot of junk, commercial knives and stuff like that. Burn me out, man. I don't like it. <laughs>
0: I knew,
1: Gas I station knew knives. That,
3: <laughs> yeah. I knew
1: that he was, he was up there on sharpening when I found out that a significant part of his business came from rabbis having their tools sharpened to perform the brisk.
3: Yeah, dude. <laughs> I uh, thought he was joking when he first told me about that. And he's like, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah,
1: dude, you want to talk about a no kidding precision tool. And I mean if you can sharpen if you are preferred for sharpening that, you I bow down to you.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a quiet dude, man. So I don't think a lot of people know about him. But as far as I'm concerned, he's probably, probably one of the best sharpeners in the world. Like, uh, I've learned a lot of stuff myself. i had been sharpening it before I met him, you know, for about six years, you know, and so I thought I knew a lot of stuff. But it's like, he was just on another level. And that really helped me elevate my game. So you know, when those stones got through his shop, I mean, these guys are blowing through, like, Naniwa Chazera stone, 400 grit stones, like, every, like, three to six months kind of stuff. Like, they're just going through stones. They, they wear them down, they keep them flat until they turn into wafers, and then they're too, <laughs> they're too thin to sharpen with, and they break. And so it's like, wow, you know, most guys, your Chazera stone's going to last your whole life, and you're never going <laughs> to think about it. And these guys are wear, they're doing so much sharpening, they're going through them in, in a matter of months. So when this stone lasted two years before it needed to be flattened, like that's insane, you know. With that kind of volume, that no normal person's going to touch. It's like that's a product. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, you still haven't told people where they could find them.
3: Oh, for my website, uh, www.triplebhandmade.com. And you guys surprised me. I mean, they sell out every time. Uh, maybe that means I need to raise the price. But i the price has been I've kept them the same. Yeah. I'll keep it them the same like for you guys. You just need to get more. Yeah, we just need to get more. Well the problem is they have difficulty making them. Uh, you know, the company we get these from, they just it's just hard to make. Uh and I, I can understand that. I mean, I I tried getting stones made. There were other prototype stones and things that were made from different companies, and I can understand what goes into it. Uh I even tried to get them made cheaper uh in China and stuff like that, but they just they don't have any concern for quality. Uh they didn't seem to understand it like you know, this is a quality product. Like we can't just have this junk, uh, you know. So luckily I wasn't just some like material science, super nerd. Like I would get the product and it would like, it sucked. And so I was like, that doesn't work. Or if I thought it was good, I could always rely on, you know, like Aton to try it out. And he'd be like, no, that sucks. Or no, that or, yeah. that wore out too fast for what it would need to sell for. So there, there's, there's definitely a really interesting balance. And this stone hits a really nice sweet spot. It looks like for freehand sharpening. People are asking too. They're like, hey, can you get that for an Edge Pro system or this and that? And it's like, you don't seem to understand. This has been like fine-tuned for freehand. The same principles that make this great for freehand, these are two different worlds. They don't cross over. And for some reason mm-hmm. that people are just like, I don't understand what, you're, what you just said. <laughs> are you going to ask Michael L'Angelo to paint your kitchen? No. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. But there's, there's a different set of stones that work for the edge. You want metallic bonded for your edge pro system because uh, those could be used dry. The vitrified bonding needs water. So um, there's kind of like that little nuance there that's maybe difficult uh, to explain to people, but
1: can you use like a, a lapping fluid does Does it need to be water, or can you use like uh, like some of the lapping fluids?
3: Water is recommended. I mean water just seems to work good. I mean the bonding and stuff it, it's really good, man i mean it it really resists uh, loading. Uh, dishing, things like that. I mean, I just use water. I sold the first one to my buddy, Phil Wilson. He's a <laughs> He's been kind of my hero coming up through this night stuff because he's kind of like the godfather of super steels, you know. And so when I when I was telling him about these stones, he's like, dude, I got to get one. And Phil's old school, you know, <laughs> he paid me with a check. He mailed me a check for it. <laughs> but he uses Windex. That's what he always used. And I'm not going to tell Phil Wilson what to do.
2: <laughs> yeah. Windex is quite a bit of water anyway, right? Yeah, so. I think. What is it like a uh, ammonia and?
1: Yeah, it's water and ammonia, I think.
2: <laughs>
1: and <up>. and blue. <laughs> yeah, and I the vast majority of what I do now is part of CPM S thirty five EN. I got some right here.
3: Oh, here comes the engineer. Oh, yeah. Where's to it say
1: Sandy? Active ingredient water. <laughs> <do>. oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. First first ingredients water, hydroxia, ethanol, isopropylene, ammonium. Well, why don't you run it through the chemical analyzer and give it a good old yeah. taste there, Kyle?
0: I, I, yeah. So, give it a taste.
3: <laughs> We're all drinking Is that here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: yeah. <laughs> so while Kyle's poisoning himself, <laughs> um, 100% solution bound the... plastic.
1: Ooh. Mm. You did the uh, the sharpening for the the carta cata katara,
3: katara catra karatata. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so,
1: what kind of system did you use for that, and why?
3: I used I used the Edge Pro, and that was just one I was familiar with. Like I got the first one in a trade because uh, I didn't have one, and I was like, man, these are kind of expensive. So I, tr- I traded a knife for a used one from a buddy. I was going through the motions with it. And I, uh, you know, my ego was so huge uh, from freehand sharpening. I was trying to figure out how to use it. And then I realized I don't even know how the hell this thing even works. (laughs) So I'm over in Oregon and the place that actually makes it is over in the Dallas, Oregon. So I'm like, I know what I'll do. I'll just drive over there and I'll have them teach me, you know? So I got the owner there. I got, I got Cody. He's kind of a co-owner type person. And, you know, I hang out there and I'm like, Hey, I want to learn how to use this thing. And, You know, they could tell I got the used model, but they were still nice to me. (laughs) And they changed out the suction cups and stuff on there. And I had the owner show me and he could tell me, uh, he could tell I kind of had an ego to me. You know, I was like, I know what I'm doing. You know, I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't let that down. And he kind of looked over at me. He's like, I mean, I'm not a a scrub. You know, I don't, I know how to freehand sharpen. And he kind of like smiled and looked at me. He's like, dude, who do you think our customers are? He's like, you think we get customers that just don't know how to sharpen? I was like, I well, guess yeah. not. Yeah I, was like, I guess, yeah, I was like, I guess not. He's like, yeah, people come to us because they already know how to sharpen, and then they want to they use this thing too. He's like, we don't just like, sell this to people who don't know anything. Like, usually people, they come to us because they've been sharpening, and then they want to try this thing out. I was, oh, I was yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah, you I, have I a point. That. Yeah, I was like, all right, I'll tone it down a little bit. <laughs> so I got humble a little bit there, and I had them teach me how to use it and stuff and their their yeah. method. And of course, I don't do the same technique that they show me. You should never do that, right? Somebody shows you something, you should shut up, empty your cup, have it empty for them to fill it, and then learn their method, and then kind of adapt it to what you're doing and kind of learn, okay, how can I change this and make this work good for me once you've got kind of the principles and stuff down? So that's what I did. I had to actually build up a skill for it. I mean, I took it really serious. I was really stressed out about the Catcher Project because it's like, every I just felt like everybody was relying on me to show what the steals were going to do and you know, I didn't want to be like the laughing stock of like, oh, wow, this, you know, he ruined it or something, you know. So I was really stressed out about it. I, I put everything I could into it. I tried to master the system cool. and get the best edges I could so that we could really express and see what the steels were doing. So I know when some people are looking at those data points and like, mm, that seems off in my experience. I see this steel doing that. And, oh, how are these even sharpened? They were sharpened pretty damn good, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, were sharpened you know, pretty damn
1: good the dr laren
0: thomas
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that was cool that was a cool project to be a part of so i hear a lot of people talk about like the slurry and stuff for stones how's that factor in there
3: it's for like finishing you know i I think that some people in the sharpening circles call it like third body abrasion you know uh other people uh like i learned from Aton and stuff like for doing single bevels and things like that, it was pretty valuable for finishing high and low spots on a giant bevel. Uh, I mean, but you could look at some of my knives. I have like, you know, pretty tiny bevels on there. Slurry mm-hmm. not really going to help me out too much. And I'm just focused not really on like how the bevel looks as much as how crisp it is. So maybe when it comes to like getting a really crisp, sharp edge, uh, you don't want slurry on there. But maybe when you're trying to go for a certain look or aesthetic on a larger bevel, maybe that's more important. I know the super vitrified stones, they don't make slurry. Uh, which you don't want. That's a sign your stone is wearing out. So softer stones are usually known for d- making lots of slurry and stuff like that, which is good for, like I said, finishing out uh, larger bevels or finishes on knives and stuff like that. But that's kind of like a an area of knives that I don't. I'm not really as concerned with. I'm concerned with like uh, cutting retention and edge performance, and some of the stuff that maybe people focus on with that. There's kind of more traditional Japanese style knives with different claddings and stuff like that. And you can bring out this really beautiful kind of foggy Kasumi finish and things. And I, I thought that was neat, but it doesn't, doesn't make the knife cut longer. So I, don't, I just don't care.
0: <laughs>
1: I've, got a, I've actually got, I got a really simple question for you to just kind of clear the decks for. Um, when you're sharpening on a stone, hmm. should you go edge first or spine first?
3: Go back and forth, man, and so I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll move this I'll move the knife back and forth on it because I'm setting the bevel, and so that that doesn't matter as much. When I go to clean the bevel once I've established a bevel on each side, which I know I've done that because I'm looking at it, it looks even on both sides, and I have a I've raised a burr on each side, and then I go to clean off the burr. I'll go edge trailing uh, to clean that up, and I find with edge leading. Maybe maybe I don't want to do that because uh, I don't want to collide my apex with anything that's on the stone. And I, I find that when you go edge trailing, seen, it, if you take a giant bevel knife, you'll notice this too. Like if you go edge trailing, you're having more of an effect down towards the edge. Edge leading, you're having more of an effect on the shoulder of the edge. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me like I want to go edge trailing light touch, and I don't want to collide my edge with anything on the stone. And so edge trailing seems like it helps. So that's just what I've been doing. But some people will argue against me when they hear this information like, well, I've always done edge leading and the reason why is because you're going to make more burr when you do that. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I find that when I go edge trailing freehand, I get a better result. I think if in your experience with your idiosyncrasies of how you do stuff, if you go edge leading, and you get a better result, so be it.
1: I have heard the arguments both ways. And uh, even with the long blades, Like I don't do the Japanese style where you work one section and move it down, work one section. Mm -hmm. I'll draw, I mean, the way I was taught was to draw the entire edge in a single movement across the stone.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and I truly have not been able to see a difference between the two Mm. and that may be my skill set. And I have heard really great arguments on both sides, but I can't tell the difference.
3: Well, I mean, there's some tools you can get to really kind of help quantify things. And I think that's kind of the future that we're going to be moving into here in the next 10 years when it comes to sharpening. So there's a company called Edge On Up, and they make something called a Best Tester. And it has mm-hmm. a piece of string filament. It almost looks similar to fishing wire, but it's not. It's like a type of plastic fiber optic. And you, you stretch it over a little holding device, and you set it on a uh, load, uh, load cell scale. And then it'll measure how much force in grams it took to separate that string And there's a certain set of standards for each one, such as like 400 grams. uh, That's like working edge, kind of dull by, you know, guys like us. And then something like 100 grams is going to be sharp. And then something like 50 grams is like extreme angles or extreme polish. It'll be very sharp in separating the string, but maybe, you know, use in the kitchen, you know, might be kind of overkill for working with kind of dual density foods like tomato skin and the flesh and stuff. You might rub on the skin a little bit more, even though technically it'd be sharper on the best tester. So it's kind of an interesting tool, but what you could use with that, you could either use it for flexing your ego or you could use it as a tool for ruling out different techniques that you're doing. So it's kind of an invaluable device because you can, there, you can only go so far with cutting paper and shaving hair a certain way, right? And while you can notice nuances between this cut paper better than that, when you could start getting numbers for stuff, that really changes things. And you could really start ruling out some details of, wow, when I do this, I get a significantly better result. Then when I do that, I'm going to do that now. So there's no BS. There's no arguing with people on the internet or asking this guy, "Hey, what do you do?" And he tells you, "Well, this is what I like to do. I like to, I like to pull out this old. You got to make sure you get an old, worn rubber uh, uh, leather belt, and you have to go like this. And do, you know, you'll find yourself chasing all these different idiosyncrasies that people are doing, and it's not getting it you better. You're ruling out too much stuff. You give up because you're getting frustrated. Nothing seems to be working. But when you actually have a tool of spitting out numbers, and you can see the difference between that and this, you're like, okay. Or maybe there's no difference, and you're like, okay.
1: <laughs> well, I'm. Not- it also takes out the you know cutting paper and stuff i have found whether or not i'm drawing or pushing how smooth like i i've got a neurological shake and if i'm having a bad day and my hand's not steady mm-hmm. paper cutting i get crap results mm-hmm. so taking out the the human error part of it i think will be a huge advantage with a, a standardized testing device like that because then whether or not you smoothly drew the 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 edge across the paper, that becomes null and void because it's just the edge it's not your technique it's just the edge
2: yeah yeah,
3: it's a good tool, man. I, I especially like it for testing uh, not only differences between steels but also like uh, just refining my process for sharpening you know it's been a huge help, I think
2: yeah, and they're not they're not too terribly expensive, like two hundred and fifty. Two hundred seventy bucks, something like that. Yeah, that's the one the, I got. The PE fifty
3: A. That's okay. the higher one. One. It's got the three gram, uh, three kilogram. Excuse me. Uh, load cell in there, and it just has uh It's able to respond faster. So a lot of times too, you'll see some user error when people are using these machines. You're supposed to use it, tension it to hundred grams on the uh, tensioning, and then you lower the edge on there very slowly, and you watch the numbers creep up very slowly. Sometimes you'll see people that are kind of more. Uh, just amateur about it, they're just sitting there chopping it and they're getting a low result or you, know, you can get a false high result and they're like, wow, look at my number, you know and it's like, well, that's not, you're not doing it right <laughs> but it comes with instructions uh, well, it,
1: It'll be interesting too to see how the art evolves because like you said an edge may be really good for if you're nerding out you want the most precise edge Yeah, but once you bang that against the cutting board a couple of times, you've ruined it. There was no reason for you to go that far. You really could have done just a middle edge and gotten more life. It'll be interesting to see when you get to working edges, like how that, that variation, that sweet spot dials in.
3: Yeah, it's interesting too. Like sometimes maybe like rapid edge loss could be due to, you know, having a sneaky little burr hiding there at the edge. You break off the burr. And what was remaining Uh, on that burr is still there. Like what you've broken, because you'll break off the burr. You'll Okay, I'm good to go. I'm cutting paper, solid. But there could just be a little tip of that frayed metal there that wasn't cleaned off properly. And so, you know, someone will go use the knife or it's hard to detect too, because you can blend that into your uh, edge. So there's no like discerning little thing you can see sometimes even in the microscope. And you go to use it and it's this foily piece of edge at the very end. And it just insta-bends, especially when you make contact with stuff like a cutting board. And then you're like, what the heck, dude? Like, this edge went dull so fast when it could have been air, you know, involved. <laughs> and that's, yeah. I think we talked earlier, Kyle, about that guy, Vadim, Dr. Vadim, mm-hmm. who you bought that book from. And that's kind of some of the work he was working on with his Knife Deep burn book. And he was exploring that, which was, it was really good information. You know, it's too bad that he had, you know, passed away, rest in peace, but because he was he kept working on stuff like that. He had all kinds of tests and things he was working on and who knew what his next breakthrough would have been in 5 years and stuff like that. So yeah, memento mori, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, the odd of those guys thinking on different levels and like to or dedicating a lot of their research to like one particular aspect. It's crazy what they come up with sometimes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh it, it definitely gets your mind going about like, wow, like this getting rid of this burr feature is like, it's a pretty big deal for edge retention.
1: I've also noticed that he's polishing the edge. Mm-hmm. I, a couple of years ago, I had a guy who was going to teach him how to make some leather sheaths, and I, I showed him how to cut the pattern out and I stepped away and he said, your knife is duller than mine, but it cuts better. First of all, what are you talking about? <laughs> and The knife that I had left behind, it it wouldn't shave, and his would.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But when he went to cut leather, mine cut better. And the edge that I used was a highly polished edge, and he didn't. And, I mean, when we went to shave, his was sharper. But when it came to drawing through a fibrous material like leather, is that fibrous? I don't know. But the polished edge cut leather better. than than his rough, not polished edge.
3: Yeah, it's, it. I'll trust me. Like uh, I'll pull my hair out sometimes about just what type of edge to put on the knife for a customer. Cause I can, I understand, you know, especially from working with Aton over at the knife house and stuff, people have huge differences in what they think is sharp. And sharpness, it changes to, sharpness in like lay people's terms is, it's working really good for whatever you're doing. But then the problem is like that's different things at the edge. So like you put a yeah. toothy edge on there, I mean, you're going to be able to go through animal hide and stuff like that like crazy. It's just really going to grab and grip and, and, and cut through that stuff without slipping and sliding on that. And then you try that same edge for like shaving your face and you're just going to have a red rash on your face. It's going to irritate the skin so bad because you're asking those edges to do different things. I think uh, Murray Carter, uh, he kind of put it really cool where he was like, uh, there's cuts you keep and cuts you throw away. And Murray said that for cuts you keep, you want a polished edge. So if you're trying to cut something and make a really clean cut to save like things like leather for a sheath or, you know, maybe ingredients for food or cutting things like your face, you probably want to keep your face. You want to do a polished edge for things you're cutting to throw away like cardboard, uh, maybe animal um, pied. (laughs) I know some people keep it and stuff, but you know, things like that, you want a rougher edge because you want it to grip and not slip and, and kind of saw through that stuff versus the other stuff you're trying to push cut uh, uh, through that stuff more. So it's kind of interesting that kind of like, <laughs> these are doing different things, but then everyone's just using sharpness kind of loosely as like, you know, whatever is working good for whatever situation they're in.
1: <laughs> well, and it some of it is the steel too. Yeah, um, uh, Ethan was over and I had a, I think it was a 1095, and I started taking it up past 600 grit. And he looked at me like an idiot. Like, (laughs) what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sharpening a knife. He's like, no, 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 no. And me being me, I may have got my dander up a little bit. And sure enough, an AEBL or a CPM 154 cut way better when I got up around 2000 grit. But the 1095, after about 600 grit, it actually. Quit cutting as well.
3: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Um, and this was on this was on food products, but it's it's the steel and the usage, and it's building the experience of you're going to use it this way. It's this steel. It needs to be sharpened to this
3: way. And how much of that is also just heat treat too? I mean, no one ever wants to talk well, about that. Everybody everybody talks about heat treat as in, oh, this good heat treat or this bad heat treat. But uh, you know, there's some nuances there that could be fleshed out. I mean, it seems like when you want to start going up higher in polish, you really need to like <laughs> a steel microstructure that's hard enough to support that finer that finer edge with the polish. Like 52100 yeah. is actually capable of extreme hardness, and no one really thinks about that. Most people are only running it like what 58 to 62. I mean, that stuff will definitely creep up to 65, and that kind of changes what it is a little bit. You know, and then all of a sudden maybe you can push a little bit of a, more of a polished edge in that situation.
1: and this this may be incorrect, and this will be a, a good ch- chance for me to get an education. but steel structure I when I'm teaching, I use the example of if you take a pile of gravel and you push it out to an edge, it's got a certain profile. and if you take a pile of sand and you push it out to an edge, it'll have a much keener profile. And the same thing is true with, with steel structure. If you've got really big carbides or really big grains, it's like pushing gravel together. You're only going to get so fine an edge, and it's going to be toothy. If you get something with a finer structure, when you push it together, it's going to be the finer grains let you get a finer edge.
3: I mean, that's interesting, too. I mean, But you know, one of the things, though, is that finer, you know, some of these carbides are actually keeping your grains fine. And so when you can start getting up in the higher carbide volume steels, people are like, oh, they'll, they'll say the PM steels are fine grain. But you're thinking to yourself like, well, they're just fine carbide. But then these carbides are pinning these grains. So when you're austenitizing your austenite grains, they're not really able to grow as much. So there was one interesting exploration I was doing with uh, deciding if carbides were bad or not, because I remember guys like Cliff Stamp were talking about. And uh, things like edge stability and how carbides are bad, because carbides are really brittle hard features inside the steel. So it's like, okay, if carbides are bad, is there a steel that maybe doesn't have them? So at the time I was very smitten with a steel like CPM4V because it had one of the highest combinations of strength and toughness I could find in that moment. And I thought it was really cool stuff. But when I was trying to push extreme geometries, like under 10 degrees per side and, and super thin, like three thousandths behind that edge, I was just trying to find the limit and it was failing. And so I was thinking maybe one of the causes was uh, carbides. And so I, I remember I talked to Laren and I was like, Laren, what do you think there would be out there with all your steel knowledge that would be like 4V, but without carbides? And he found this steel called caldi, which is a matrix steel. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And I looked at the carbon content and stuff like that. And I was like, well, how is that 4V without carbides? It has way less carbon and all that stuff. And I they later understood that, that's how much carbon is actually going into solution when you're heat treating 4V, like the, you're only putting in like 04 to 0.6% carbon in solution. You're not actually putting 1% solution inside of the steel. A lot of people, too, will make that argument, too, when they say ABL sucks and 1095 is better because it has more carbon. Well, you're not putting 1% carbon in solution when you're heat treating 1095. That's not how that works. So with this caldye steel, uh, if you're trying to actually put all the carbides inside their in solution, because when the steel's in its annealed condition, it, it just, it's like a matrix of carbides, you're dissolving those carbides at temperature, and those are actually like your reservoirs for your carbon to put into solution. And so you dissolve it all, but then the problem with the caldye is when you dissolved all the carbides, the grain started exploding in size. <laughs> so you actually didn't want to dissolve all the carbides because they were growing so rapidly once you dissolved all the carbides that any advantage you maybe had was, it was irrelevant because now, <laughs> these grains are so large that you're not getting as much strength and toughness and things like that as a, a steel that did have these brittle carbides that were helping pin grains. So you want carbides <laughs> to some degree. You, you do want them.
2: Yeah, like in Magnica, he was talking about the, the different types of cro- carbides, the chromium carbides versus vanadium carbides. Some are more brittle than others and stuff like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the man, the cut, that's the beauty of that man, the cut is he pulled off this <laughs> magic steel, basically, because you basically have stainless 4V. And when you say something is a stainless version of something, it's like, oh, so it's the suckier version that's stainless. And it's like, no, this is actually just stainless 4V. Uh, all the chromium carbides are dissolved. It's 8% carbide volume, just like the 4V. And it actually has a slightly finer size in carbides than 4V, which goes against everything that we've learned. You know, from knives and steel, where okay, this is a trade-off. When you go stainless, you're going to get more of these larger, softer carbides because chromium is also a carbide former, and that's just a detriment you have to deal with if you don't want your knife to rust. And so, with MagnaCut, what made it so special was that well, this is kind of a game changer because now we've gotten rid of these chromium carbides. And we have actually a finer carbide structure than even 4V. So it's like, that's crazy, you know?
1: And and I use the shit out of MagnaCut. I love it. But to keep our integrity, I am going to touch on right now in its current form, it's got a little bit of a warpage issue. Mm -hmm. Um, They're working on that. That's one of the reasons Kyle is uh, selling me the new peening hammer. I love the performance of Mm MagnaCut. I use the shit out of it, but full disclosure, especially to some of the the newer makers, it it does have some warping issues. You may have to do some straightening um, during your quenching or not doing quenching, but during tempering process, it's a little temperamental. They're working on tweaking the formulation and the, the the actual mechanical process to improve that. But full disclosure, We've been plugging the hell out of MagnaCut. I love it. I use it. Kyle uses it. But before you jump off into MagnaCut, you probably need to have a little experience and do a little reading and be prepared to to work with a steel like that.
3: Make sure you have belts and stuff to do it. You guys try to do stress relieving before you went to austenitizing with that stuff? Um, To see if that made it? I have now. Okay. Um,
1: I had a bunch, not a bunch, I had a batch warp, and it was interesting. It was all to the same degree in the same direction, hmm. which really jumped out to me because that never happens. And some of the feedback I got was stress from the rolling process. So now I, uh, I anneal it before I heat treat it.
3: Yeah. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll do a stress relief on steels. Sometimes I'll, I'll hook a buddy up too. Like I, I hooked a buddy up, and he treated some Z-Max for him. And I didn't do a stress relief before I did it. I mean, I have no idea what kind of grinding processing some people are doing too. Some people will, they'll think that when the steel's in its annealed condition and they're working on the grinder, they can push it extra hard because it's not heat treated and there's nothing to ruin but you there may be some possibility of putting some stresses inside there from grinding super hot, you know you turn anything blue and you're you're laughing because it's like uh-huh like I just <laughs> I'm pushing this belt it's not hardened anyways it's not a big deal, but you, <laughs> you, you, could you be blue,
1: some, yeah, stay.
3: you could be putting some stresses there in the steel and i'll I'll run up to like i'll just put it in a cold oven and run it up to thirteen hundred uh, i won't do the full annealing process because i you know it's just too much time and I don't want to change any features inside the steel too much i I just want to relieve you know build up of like things like dislocations and things inside there without recrystallizing everything
1: um i'll yeah. go between 14 and 1600 mm. right before i leave the shop and just leave the kiln closed and let it cool in the kiln
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then start the process the next morning mm.
2: yeah and talking with Laren, that's what i'm planning on doing with my next batches of magna cut is just make a big old packet of stainless steel knives and do an annealing cycle before i do the whole heat treat process on them. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think stress relieving, I, th- I think that's a, that's something that doesn't get as much love.
2: I think <laughs> with
3: a lot of no, it takes extra time. Yeah. <laughs> well, The stock removal guys have gotten a little
1: spoiled. Um, generally they don't put nearly as much stress in as the guys that forge do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So frequently they can get away with skipping the, the stress relieving step. Yeah. And every so often that comes back to
3: bite you in the butt. Well, because it's like rolling the dice, actually. I mean, honestly, with any knife you're going to make, you are rolling the dice. I think also like for somebody like me, I don't do a ton of volume so I can get away with like, you know, oh, this one didn't warp or this one, you know, (laughs) because you're rolling the dice. Once you start like, you know, doing a higher volume, you're going to see like more of that 30% of like, damn, 30% of what I did just warped. This sucks, you know, versus like it's, it's every other sudden, knife or every five yeah. knives. It doesn't seem like it's as much when you don't make as many knives.
1: Yeah, all of a sudden 30%, 30% is a noticeable
2: volume. Yeah. Hundreds of dollars.
3: <laughs> yeah, and it can happen It can happen with a, a lot of steels too. I think what's kind of cool with Mamacad is we're kind of getting like high performance heat treatment from the data sheet where there's instructions to like, as soon as you're done quenching, put it inside of the liquid nitrogen right away versus in the past you would have people do all kinds of goofy stuff from like the i don't know tool steels industry and stuff for giant dyes where you would do like snap tempers and things like that which you don't want that actually shows up at the edge and some people would argue well it's the same rockwell hardness or this and that and you know rockwell hardness testing it it shows bulk hardness it doesn't actually individually measure the the little phases that are inside of the microstructure but when you sharpen down to an edge. You're going to show up. You're going to have this edge that gets chattered up real easy at the same rock hardness compared to something that doesn't and actually hold its shape better. So these little details, I think they're, they're pretty important. I, I think it's a little more stressful for fixing warps and things like that. But the edge performance, is it's that much better than trying to heat treat it in a way where it's like, I'll do a snap temper. That'll mitigate some of this warping issues. And oh, I'll skip the cryo because cryo seems like it makes it warp. And it's like, oh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> that edge sucks. Well, as long got, as you do
1: important things like align your quenching device with magnetic noise.
3: Oh, there we go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't want to get into the secret stuff, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a guy on my TikTok that was uh, when I was showing the knives in the cryo, he was like, it doesn't do a damn thing. It was like, mm, you need to do, or I, I just said, you need to do some research before you make a comment like that. This and, isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> so but whatever the guy yeah. the guy was like having a battle with another guy on my tiktok comment feed so it's like whatever <laughs> you guys go at it
1: liquid nitrogen quench is i always have a bunch of leftover liquid nitrogen ice cream and what, what's that ice cream I was about to say, one of my chefs taught me how to make things look, especially carbonated stuff like champagne ice cream, oh my uh, God. orange crush ice cream. The really carbonated stuff makes a really great texture. You just you put it in a pot, pour some liquid nitrogen while you whisk it. And
2: I have to do that with some root beer. Interesting. Oh, yeah.
3: I haven't, I haven't tried it with carbonated stuff. That's crazy. I always thought you needed like some sort of cream or milk. I didn't realize, like, just do that with carbonated stuff. I got liquid nitrogen right now. I might have to try that. Yeah. And he, uh,
1: I I do like chef's tables every so often. And so we're right there in the kitchen. He's like, oh, you're going to, you're not going to believe this. You can't, you you won't know what this is. I'm like, oh yeah, it's a liquid nitrogen. (laughs) What? (laughs) And he just straight up, he put champagne in a, uh, in a pot and started whisking it and had his sous chef just pour the liquid nitrogen into it. Wow. And it's blind off. And he kept whisking, and what was left was this really light, flaky champagne ice cream. Wow. And he was saying, "Yeah, we've done it with Coke, we've done it with Orange Crush, like the the carbonated stuff for whatever. Really gets this cool texture.
2: <laughs> yeah, wow. One of the one of the cool little things. Uh, uh, two weekends ago, went with my wife. She wanted to go to the thrift shop with the boys to look for some some stuff, crafting project stuff, and the second place we went to cuz my dewar has like a draw straw with like a bubbler stone so it doesn't have like an open top so you actually open a valve and it'll siphon and like pour out and in the corner was a 4 liter and a 2 liter like the liquid nitrogen bucket uh for like temporary storage and like uh transport and uh i was like what in the heck is that doing here and uh, they had three dollars and ninety five cents a piece on them. <laughs> they had no idea what, what they
1: were. in your trunk.
2: <laughs> so yeah, they always like. I will take both of these. <laughs> so now I'm gonna have a lot easier way to use my Dewar because like it has a V band clamp on there to like hold the cap in, and uh, you can't just like take it off because it starts spraying everywhere. <laughs> Even though there's all sorts of warnings, I don't know why I didn't. Uh, Heed those as much as I should have. I was morning, like, Yeah. Morning. We all <laughs> so know safety is third. When I started taking the V band clamp off, it's like liquid nitrogen starts shooting everywhere. And I'm like, Uh oh, uh <laughs> oh. Luckily, I was able to get it tightened back up. And but
1: I absolutely had my life flash before my, well, not my life, but my ambulatory life flash before my eyes when I was transferring from uh, my door to uh, a container. And I splashed some on my foot and I was wearing like mesh tennis shoes. And I knew for an absolute fact that I had just, how many do we have left? What? I had just, whoa, 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 whoa. stop right there. <laughs> and I got really lucky that the mesh created enough airspace that it boiled off before it got to my skin. But there was a really tense, like 30 seconds when I had decided whether or not I had just flashed Frozen
3: in my foot i don't know yeah. guys like uh disclaimer uh you know be super safe don't, but the light, effect, the light and frost effect the light and frost effect kind of keeps it from just like absolute killing you i think people watch that movie t2 with the liquid metal man and he turns he freezes and crumbles and stuff like that but you know there's there's these videos of people doing the liquid nitrogen challenge you shouldn't do it but uh they'll pour the liquid <laughs> nitrogen on them there's like a vapor barrier when two things are of two
1: Hello. extreme
3: differences in temperature. Uh, it doesn't really, there's like a vapor barrier that keeps them from connecting. So I can show you guys a video after we get done with this. Uh, there's this guy in Russia, obviously, and he's in some sort of foundry oh, and they're pouring liquid metal out and he takes his glove off and he stands over by it and he slaps the liquid metal yeah, because I've there's a, there's a vapor barrier and it's the same effect with going really cold. Because if things are that much difference in temperature, you kind of get this vapor blanket. You know, I think you guys have also seen people like, oh, I'm going to dunk my hand in liquid uh, lead or whatnot, and it doesn't burn me if you're really quick. Now you're going to get messed up if you like if you let liquid nitrogen settle on your skin and you don't move it off you real quick. If it settles, it's going to burn you. If you dip your hand in the liquid. In the molten lead and just leave it there. Of course, it's going to get you, but like, mm-hmm. there, there's that light like, frost effect, so it's not as frightening as I think people make it out to be. But you should totally be super safe. I mean, you shouldn't be a yeah. dummy about it.
1: Well, but. it's like when you when you're oil quenching and you get the vapor jacket. Like you've got to agitate the blade, yeah, that. That I guess it's just a pocket of nothingness.
3: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, because yeah, two different temperatures that are extreme. I mean, you're always going to get this kind of vapor. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. Yeah. Should we bring it back and talk a little bit about burr removal or have we just gone so far off of uh, the show notes that there's no coming back at this point?
3: Whatever you guys want to talk about, man. We probably got to <laughs> wrap up here soon. My, my, I'm using my wife's computer and I think she had to get some stuff done before work tomorrow. So she's kind of like looking at me and going.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up here soon. Is there any uh, any other things you want to give people a heads up with Triple uh, B knives or? uh?
3: F- no, nah, I'm good, man. I'm just, I'm having a good time talking with you guys. I mean, I'm, I'm working on knives. I'm going to try to be at Blade Show. I know you go to Blade Show, you put on that class on file work.
2: So yep. yeah, just see if I'm believe i going to be doing it again. Alicia told me I was on the list, so I haven't seen anything official. She said once Blade Show Texas uh, happens, she was going to square a bunch more of that stuff up. So yeah, you know, no names or nothing, but some of those classes were, uh, I mean, I didn't feel like I've maybe got my money's worth, you know, no yep. names I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I know the feeling cuz I've taken quite a few classes but I I got really good feedback from a lot of my guys that they were all super happy and Alicia said she got a bunch of emails to her that I did a good job so
3: Yeah That's yeah it cool. sounds like you put in some homework there I'll probably go check you out I don't do file work but I'll I'll probably go check it out man Yeah
1: you know, I I have fought it and I have fought it and I have fought it but Kyle has finally worn me down that, that maybe I should learn to class up my knives a little bit
2: i've been telling him to send me some and i'll do it for him
3: podcast
1: trap. and no Total. collaboration
3: come on yeah. now I'm, yeah, I'm falling for that trap i'll
1: get them back and like one side will have beautiful file work and the other side will be for me to do
0: Ooh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> match it up uh, no i'll be good to you dan yeah,
0: no, you know, we had to do
1: We ought to do some sort of collaboration for Blade Show this year.
2: Yeah. Do it. Yep. I agree. Let's do it. Um, all right. Uh, you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com is the best way. All the shows are there, all the show notes are there. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. We're mostly active on Instagram. Send us a DM. Dan and I usually try to respond fairly quickly and, uh, sometimes we'll even put who's actually talking to you. Uh, you can also keep in touch with the podcast uh, on pretty much every place you can listen to it. We haven't had anybody for a really long time. Tell us that we're not on where they want to listen and keep in touch with Dan Eastland of dogwood custom knives at dogwood custom knives.com dogwood custom knives on Facebook and Instagram and Dan at dogwood custom com. And you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of cage daily knives at cage daily knives.com cage daily knives on Facebook, Instagram, uh twitter and tiktok so lots of good stuff going on there some some videos and stuff trying to uh class it up a little bit and bring some knowledge to people so sean oh, yeah. thanks uh thanks for being on the podcast i learned a lot about stones and maybe
3: i maybe
2: yeah I,
1: off the air i need to i need to order a couple. i mean
3: i i learned a yeah. you know i learned from you guys too you guys do killer work <laughs> you guys uh full-time
2: makers man crushing it <laughs> good job yeah thanks man yeah well uh maybe i'm gonna need you to do some more stone sharpening instead of just do everything off my belt <laughs> do what you gotta do man. <laughs> all right all right wanna say good night dan good night dan right. i'll <laughs> say good night
0: dan too good night dan <laughs> good night guys Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point, we're gonna talk.